0: Today is podcast number 34, the third and last of three installments of the novel, The Spirit of Want. Lucy McNeil makes hard decisions about her future that cause her to face her culpability for the past and suffer unexpected consequences. So let's start on installment three of The Spirit of Want. Chapter 40. Lucy On the flight to California, Lucy felt as if she had escaped the hostility of Atlanta. She felt strangers look at her without judgment, and her tension was less. The vague, nondescript apprehensions about almost everything were nearly gone. It became clear in her short time in Atlanta that she could never live with Luke again. Luke liked his honorable, self-important, boring persona. She had not been intimate with him for years, and she could not imagine succumbing to his passions ever again. And his talk, although more civil than she had expected, was laced with hidden, incessant recriminations. Even if he agreed to leave his rented house and move in with her, he would have demanded loyalty. And to be around him, seeing his desire to be a husband, to take over her life, only made her think of how Howie demanded little and how he infused her life with intensity. Even with his philandering, she perversely wanted him even more. She yearned for his physical presence, his unyielding quest for pleasure. Yes, that was what it was. He was his own man, and she wanted to surround him, make him need her. Maybe that was impossible now. Still he was in her dreams with what she believed was a loyal, focused need for her love. He had not answered her calls or letters since she left Africa, but she could not stop thinking about him. Carrie Malroy, her former legal assistant, had arranged for work as an assistant with Lou Panetta, a lawyer well known to her since law school. The pay was insulting and barely sustaining, but Carrie suggested she move in with her in her apartment in Sausalito. Panetta had cancer, and although he tried to work his usual schedule, he could barely manage. He needed help. His prime political client, Maria Sanchez, was running for election for a congressional seat and needed legal consultation. Panetta accepted Lucy under the condition that he would do any of the legal work from his office, but Lucy would act as the daily consultant during the campaign. Maria Sanchez lived in her district in a commune on the coast. She was a twice-divorced activist for women's rights, accused by her opponents of lesbianism, who supported immigration reform, amnesty for illegals, legalized marijuana, universal health insurance, and pro-life. This platform made her popular with almost everyone in the community, except the right-for-choice activists on the abortion issue and the far-right conservative radicals, mostly older successful men, and anti-Hispanic whites who had begun rallies and demonstrations to vilify Maria as an alien lesbian, and anti-American. Lucy liked Maria. She saw similarities in Maria's life and career with her own struggles. They were in an official campaign headquarters in a medium-sized town of Zodiac in farm country, a hastily renovated building that had once been a dairy and that had piping that crisscrossed the ceiling and huge steel tanks that still lined the walls of some of the rooms. Lucy sat at an oval table with Maria, Fenley Cooper, a wealthy non practicing doctor eager to campaign for legalized marijuana, Paula Juarez, finances and fundraising, and Henry Sid, campaign manager. Don't make abortion an issue, Lucy said, either way. Lucy argued that in Pennsylvania, Roger gained votes by simply saying he would vote as the majority of his constituency wanted. Who could argue with that vague, supportive strategy? Let the issue rest, at least until we pull where the majority settles, she said. Avoid it altogether, Fenley said. Who could really determine what the majority wanted on any issue, much less abortion? Lucy glanced at him and held his gaze. It is what I believe, Maria said. A fetus has rights. It's how I'm going to push for legislation and Supreme Court action. It is who I am, for Christ's sake. You can be who you are without losing votes, Fenley said. It's the violence, Lucy said. Most voters don't approve of the violence over the issue, no matter how they believe. I am not violent, Maria said. But you'll provoke violence if you make it a prime issue, Henry Sid said and you'll suggest your approval of violence. Maria slammed her palm on the table. No more discussion. I expect your support in this. You're making a mistake, Maria, Lucy said. No more, Lucy. I've heard what you had to say. That's the end. We all agree, Henry said. Don't argue with me. I will not change on this issue. And you'll lose votes, Lucy said. Maria glared at Lucy. "'Enough!' "'Later that evening, in a booth in a diner "'having a late meal with Fenley Cooper, Lucy shook her head. "'I like her spirit,' she said. "'I want her to win.' "'You're a fucking feminist,' Fenley said. "'You're working for her. "'I like that she's supporting Prop 16.' "'Lucy ate part of her fruit salad. "'I don't get it, the marijuana bit. "'What's the big deal?' Lucy said.' "'It should be legalized,' Fenley said. "'For treatment?' "'I don't think it has any medical value, or if it does, there are better drugs.' "'You like it,' she laughed. "'You want to smoke ad lib.' "'And what's wrong with that?' Fenley said. "'Lucy laughed again. "'So much for citizens' rights for medicinal purposes. "'You're a hedonist.' "'Proud of it,' he said. "'And you're a doctor.' He leaned forward slightly, wiping his mouth with a paper napkin. Lost my license, he said. For what? Dispensing controlled substances. Illegally? He grinned. Profit, I made a fortune. And you're still around? Spent a little time in jail. And she takes you on for the campaign? For my money, not for my personality or my criminal record. And the constituency thought of me as a local hero. For selling drugs? He nodded. For a while I was a local salem. Lucy smiled. You are unbelievable. What about your family? Not so understanding, Fenley said. I can see why. He signaled the waiter for another martini. And what about you, your family? Fenley asked. Lucy hesitated. She usually never talked about her past, but she liked Fenley. A bust. My mother and father disown me. I think my husband screws my sister. My daughter isn't allowed to speak to me, and I haven't really seen her for years. How do you feel about that? Fenley asked. Lucy finished a glass of wine and signaled the waiter for another. I don't feel good about it, Fenley, she said. I'm not proud of it, if that's what you mean. Like me, he said. Not like you, she said. I'm not proud down deep, he said. Looking away, I still love my wife, who has married another. I miss my kids, who are ashamed of me. They went to Colorado to college to get away, both of them. Thoughts of Jennifer had crowded Lucy's mind. She did love Jennifer, and she felt a profound failure as a mother. It was neglect. She could not deny it. But she did not see it at the time, and it was definitely not that she didn't care. She'd been distracted by her career and Howard Bain. That's what life had dealt her. That's what she had decided was right. And she now was thinking often about Jennifer and what she should have done and what she should do now. She had no room for sympathizing with Fenley. C'est la vie, Fenley said. Lucy signaled for a check. I'll pay, Fenley said, tapping her hand. She shrugged. Campaign expense, he said. She stood. After dinner drink, he asked. I don't feel like it, Lucy said. She left before the check came, eager to get back to the hotel room she had rented and sit alone until she became sleepy. Chapter 41 Lucy Maria's campaign heated as weeks progressed. Lucy became an important opener at rallies. Maria was not a good speaker and had a weak presence on stage in the early goings. Lucy was a natural with the crowd, and she effectively preceded Maria, outlining the issues, praising the record and character of Maria. As they became more experienced, Maria learned to stand tall after Lucy, to project more confidence and to benefit from the interest of the crowd that Lucy had ignited. Lucy let Maria take full credit for her improvement and let her bask in her success. But Maria never gave Lucy credit, never thanked her, and it was irritating enough that Lucy soon began to see Maria as ignorant and soaked in hubris. After a vibrant rally in the north, Lucy was driving as she and Fenley returned to their base closer to San Francisco. Fenley attended every rally, often mingling with the crowd to measure the results His driver's license had been revoked for a series of DUIs, and he had to be ferried to rallies by staff. This evening, it had been Lucy's turn. "'You're a beautiful woman, Lucy,' Fenley said. He took a sip from a pocket-sized silver flask. She laughed. "'You, Lech, I don't respond to comments about beauty. "'I want to be successful, make an impact. "'You should be the one running for office,' he said." "'Don't be disloyal to our leader. "'She has talents for Congress. "'You've got the gift. "'I have no patience to compromise "'and accept less than what is right.' "'That's what lawyers do,' Finley said. "'I was defense. "'It was usually all or nothing for me. "'I lost a big one on a celebrity preacher "'who was accused of underage sex. "'Was he guilty?' "'I don't know. "'Sometimes I think so.' but most of the time not. It was complicated by his continuous sexual exploits with any adult woman who was near and willing. Fenley's look seemed to ask if she was one of those women. She kept quiet. Fenley took another sip and laid his head against the headrest. He closed his eyes. You drive like a Georgia moonshiner, he said. Hard to believe you have a driver's license. She glanced at him. His eyes were still closed. I've been suspended a few times. Speeding, she said. Never had an accident? Lucy's jaw tightened. I'm an excellent driver. At your speeds, I bet the accidents were spectacular. Lucy relaxed her grip on the wheel a little. I've had only one bad one. Total? A Porsche. Red. I love that car. Speed of light? "'With no effort,' she said. "'And her mind went to Luke. "'And that night, and how she learned to love him. "'And that was her mistake. "'Not knowing about love, she had convinced herself, "'and then, without reason, she'd fallen in love with Howie. "'She was too naive to know what tumultuous love could do to a human. "'She refused to blame Howie for that. "'He was a cad, a social misfit, a sex fiend. "'But below all that was a complex man she loved, She refused to be blamed, especially by a loser like Fenley, so she did not talk about Howie or Luke. I've really come to like you, Lucy, Fenley said, his deep-set eyes still closed. She frowned with distress, then she smiled ironically. What's to like? A lot, he said. Anything like that stirring in you, he asked. He was holding his flask flat on his narrow, concave chest with both his bony hands. She had not thought about Fenley. She didn't crave sex, from Fenley or any man now, except Howie. Only Howie had ever satisfied her. She slowed for a hairpin curve in the darkness of the coast road, the ocean overcast and gray. She liked Fenley enough. She found him frank, with a funky lifestyle and a genuine goodness to him. You like me as a friend, he said. It's okay. It's the story of my life. She liked him more than that, than just a friend. But she did not love him, and she couldn't imagine what copulation with a little man like Fenley would ever be. I'm worn out on relationships, she said. They've never worked out for me. Miss your husband? Lucy hesitated and angered at the thought of Luke. Not at all, she said. "'Is there a boyfriend?' Fenley asked. "'Never,' she lied. "'So why not a little fling? "'You and me. "'Doesn't have to be permanent.' "'I don't think so,' she said. "'But she was struck with loneliness. "'Her need for Howie had never waned, "'and against her will, her heart ached. "'They were close to Fenley's place. "'I got a good bottle of wine,' Fenley said. "'Wine? "'Since she had arrived in California.' For the first time in her life, she'd been drinking wine. It tasted okay, felt good, and was always available. Come on, Fenley said. You're always turning me down. She didn't have anything pressing. She stopped in front of his place. She shut off the engine and reached into the back seat for her shoulder bag. Great, Fenley said, and he unbuckled his seatbelt. Lucy held on to a bottle of California Red to replenish her glass. Fenley laboriously poured whiskey straight from a bottle into a flask opening the size of a little fingertip and swigged followed by sips of white wine. Why didn't he drink from the bottle? But she'd forgotten the question before she could get it out. On the sofa he groped her once, but she firmly took his hand off her, and he did not try again. Fenley passed out after midnight, and Lucy sat alone with his head on her lap, replenishing her wine glass. God, she felt alone, even when she was not. She would never be with Howie again, but she couldn't forget him. But she forgot lots of other things, important things. And she'd often think of Jennifer, wonder how she was. She decided to send her a gift with a nice note. She'd use a catalog, something feminine. Jennifer would soon be a young lady. Then she passed out. Lucy regained full consciousness the next morning after nine, before Fenley, She remembered little of what happened. He had taken her, but she was too numb to respond, and she had no memory of feeling anything at all. She ached from her awkward positioning on the sofa. Finley sucked in air through his open mouth. He did not move when she lifted his head, slipped off the couch, and settled his head back down. At her hotel room, her head hurt. She ached, and she had no appetite. She drank coffee and took aspirin, but was quickly consumed by fatigue. She lay on the bed, deciding not to go to campaign headquarters until afternoon. She slept as if escaping from the world, and did not awake rested, and had to force herself to shower and go to work. On and off during the weeks, Lucy spent many nights with Fenley, On some nights, she had been commuting back and forth to carry Malroy's place to save money. But now, it was easier to stay with Fenley. He was usually fun to be with. They'd drink wine, and he'd smoke marijuana, and they'd rewatch favorite videos of classic movies in bed. They'd laugh and cry together, and drink a pot of coffee in the morning to take on campaign duties. Lucy had taken more of the mechanical campaign chores of setting up rallies and arranging speaking engagements from retirement villages to union meetings. Maria had a bus refitted and painted with her images on both sides for campaigning, and she was demanding more time from her staff to accompany her on the road, where they slept in motels and supporters' homes when they were too far away from home base to return at night. On a Wednesday evening, after working the entire day on voter list at headquarters, Lucy picked up her forwarded mail from her post office box. In the twilight... She turned on the overhead internal car light to sort through her mail for anything important. There was a handwritten letter, marked personal, from Elizabeth. Lucy almost ignored it, setting it aside. The thought of Elizabeth raised a cloud of disagreements that still angered her. When she finished with all the other mail, she stared at Elizabeth's letter. That goody two-shoes, sucking up to people her entire life. Always the first to clear the table... Wipe up the spills, fold the laundry. Why was it so irritating? She opened the letter. Jennifer had been diagnosed with a childhood form of leukemia. She'd been under treatment for months, with some improvement, but had had a relapse, and they were taking her to a specialist for treatment and a clinical trial. The outlook was not totally bleak. To date, more than 60% had responded to the drug. "'Jennifer's spirits were up, "'although she seemed afraid to leave home. "'Does she ask for me? "'I am her mother,' Lucy thought. "'But she knew that was unlikely, "'and she knew she didn't really want to know "'that Jennifer never asked for her. "'Sadness swept through her, "'and she cried silently for a few minutes "'and then drove directly to Fenley's place. "'What a pleasant surprise,' he said. "'Nothing to do at the office. "'You're still in your underwear.' "'I'm preparing slowly today to achieve stunning perfection.' "'In a jeans and T-shirt,' she asked. "'I grace any outfit,' he grinned. "'She sat down on a straight-back wooden chair "'and put her head in her hands. "'My daughter has leukemia.' Fenley frowned with concern and sat down facing her. "'The treatments have gotten better recently. "'They're going to give her experimental drugs. "'That can't be good.' She took Fenley's silence as agreement. I don't know what to do, she said. I could call doctor friends, Fenley offered. Find out about the treatments available, she thought for a moment. Her father's a surgeon. He'll have sought out the best of everything. That's what he's good at, searching out the best. He married you, Fenley said. Oh, stop it. Fenley went to the kitchen and brought back two cups of coffee. He sat back down. "'I should go to be with her,' she said. "'I'll make the arrangements,' Finley said. "'How soon do you want to leave?' "'She stood and went to the sofa, "'sitting with her legs stretched out and her head back. "'I don't want to go,' she said. "'She's your daughter. "'I've seen her only a few times over the years. "'She won't remember me. "'She thinks my sister's her mother. "'That's what Elizabeth would do. "'Tell my daughter to call her Mommy.' I couldn't stand that. You're making up excuses. There's nothing I can do. I can't comfort her. Elizabeth and Luke will do that. I can't be involved in the treatment decisions. They'll do that. My mother will use every opportunity to recount my failures. My father's disowned me, and I can't afford the trip, and the last time I tried to see her, they had a restraining order on me. I'll pay, Fenley said. She brought her knees up and leaned forward. I don't know what to do. Call you sister. Ask her what's best. I hate her. Besides, she's not my sister. I'm adopted, and nothing like her. There must be some connection. He handed her the walk-around phone. It's about noon there. She took the phone and held it without moving for more than a minute. Then she dialed. Elizabeth answered. She sounded pleased to hear Lucy's voice. But that was the way she always sounded, as if she'd been waiting for your call. I'm worried about Jennifer, Lucy said. She's having a good day today. She's right here. Say hello to your mommy, Elizabeth said. What did Jennifer call Elizabeth then? Auntie? Really? There was some clatter as the phone was passed. Then a silence. Jennifer? "'Lucy said, it's me. "'Say hello to Mommy,' Elizabeth said in the background. "'Lucy felt the silence, "'thought of the indecision it suggested. "'I love you,' she said. "'Almost immediately, Jennifer said, "'I love you, too. "'It's Mommy,' Lucy said again. "'Lucy felt a modicum of tension leave her. "'There was the sound of Elizabeth taking back the phone.' Mommy's calling you from California, Lucy heard Elizabeth say to Jennifer. Jennifer gave a lyrical laugh of joy. Mommy, she said. Lucy heard Elizabeth take back the phone. You doing okay, Elizabeth asked. Lucy said she was doing great and asked about Luke and Agnes. She told about the campaign. Then she asked if there was anything she could do. I don't think so, Elizabeth said. She's going into the hospital this afternoon. We should be there about two weeks. Lucy asked Elizabeth to let her know how treatment went and said her goodbyes. She disconnected. Lucy looked at Fenley. I can't go. I can't do it. Why not? he asked. I can't stand how they'll treat me. She sounded friendly to me. Your daughter sounded excited, too. She didn't mean it. Of course she did. Let me make the arrangements. It will do you good. Meet them at the hospital. Maybe your mother won't go. Oh, she'll be there, believe me. I'll pay for a round trip, and you can come back when you're ready. I can't, Finley. I'll tell Maria this morning. You get details from your sister, and pack. I'll have tickets for you on the red-eye tonight." Lucy couldn't find the energy to resist, but she wouldn't call Elizabeth. She slumped back on the sofa, holding back her need to cry. Chapter 42 Lucy Lucy took a cab from Atlanta Airport to the Children's Hospital where Jennifer was being treated. She checked into an adjacent hotel for families. A sign at reception said members of a family were encouraged to stay with their child. The receptionist did not question Jennifer Osborne's mother might not be Lucy McMill. Lucy had not told anyone she was coming. She dialed her mother's number twice from Fenley's place, but hung up before it could be answered. If there was to be unpleasantness about her seeing Jennifer, she'd rather deal with it when she was able to see Jennifer and not try to convince Agnes or Elizabeth on the phone of her sincerity." She'd never backed away from confrontation that she could remember, but she dreaded seeing them all again, except Jennifer. Her plan was to see Jennifer, talk to her, spend some time. If she were lucky, she could make it happen before anyone knew. She had brought a gift, a book purchased in an airport bookshop during a stopover. Lucy reached the ward and approached a nurse's station. She introduced herself and asked to see Jennifer Osborne. The floor nurse looked puzzled for a second. She hesitated. Is something wrong? Lucy asked. I thought Jennifer's mother went to the room more than an hour ago. Shit, though, Lucy. Should she leave, come back at another time? Most likely someone would be with Jennifer now all the time. I'll call the attendant. The nurse clicked on the intercom. Lucy considered leaving. She had wanted to make it simple. "'but this was escalating against her. "'She could feel it. "'Like when things go wrong in final summaries before a jury. "'Only here. "'She couldn't make any effective adjustments. "'She either had to wait or leave. "'The attendant was male and burly. "'This woman claims to be the Osborne child's mother,' the nurse said, "'moving her head toward Lucy but not looking at her. "'May I see some identification?' the attendant asked Lucy. Lucy showed him a driver's license. McMill? Maiden name. I'm a lawyer. I kept it after I married Luke Osborne. Divorced? No. What difference does it make? He frowned. We've had abductions. As a lawyer, you must see the need for precautions. I'd like to see my daughter. Of course, he said. Wait here. He left, and Lucy sat in a chair along the wall. She thumbed through a Time magazine. The attendant returned. I'll show you to the room. Your sister is eager to see you. Jennifer lay on her back in a hospital bed with metal side rails. Her eyes were closed and her head was turned to the side. Her short reddish-brown hair fell onto the pillow and over her shoulder. Elizabeth sat in an upholstered chair. She did not move when Lucy came in. The attendant left. Is she all right? Lucy asked. She's sedated now, Elizabeth whispered, still not moving. Lucy did not react to Elizabeth's tepid reception. She had expected no more, and maybe less. She walked to the bedside and reached out to take Jennifer's hand, but thought better of it and placed both hands on the side rail. She's beautiful, she said. Elizabeth didn't respond for a while. She had readjusted and brought her left leg under her right, her skirt above her knee. Always fit and flexible, Lucy thought. She'd lost her chubbiness of a few years ago. She was quite attractive. Lucy closed her eyes. Oh, I've let myself go. I'm getting fat, she thought. Where are you staying? Elizabeth asked. Lucy kept her gaze on Jennifer how much she had missed in her daughter's life. In the hotel next door, she said. Mother's at her friend's house. Luke has a case. They'll be by later. Jennifer's having a treatment today. Does it hurt, Lucy asked. She's sedated the whole time. After. Does she suffer? She cries. It seems to hurt to move. Lucy felt the guilt of her neglect. She teared up and wiped away moisture from her lower lid with her finger. Elizabeth stood. "'Sit here. I've got some phone calls to make. I'll bring you back a coffee.' "'I don't drink coffee anymore,' Lucy said. Elizabeth frowned, as if questioning the accuracy of her memory. "'They have soda,' she said. "'Nothing,' Lucy said. After Elizabeth left, Lucy sat in the chair, But it was low, and she couldn't see Jennifer well. Lucy stood to see if Jennifer was all right. Jennifer turned her head without waking. Lucy stood by the bedside until Elizabeth returned almost an hour later. Lucy did not ask why Agnes and Luke had not arrived when Jennifer was taken for her procedure. She did not want to know the reason, although she was sure they did not want to see her When Jennifer returned, she was awake. She looked at Elizabeth, who was close by the bedside. "'Say hi to your mommy,' Elizabeth said. Jennifer looked to Lucy and smiled weakly. "'Do you feel okay?' Lucy asked. Jennifer nodded. The attendants moved Jennifer to the bed and tucked her in, and then rolled the gurney out of the room. "'I'm so happy to see you,' Lucy said to Jennifer.' Jennifer had already closed her eyes, seemingly drifting into sleep. "'Can you stay here with her?' Elizabeth asked. "'Of course,' Lucy said, offended by Elizabeth's tone. "'No one requires it, really. "'But we like to stay awake when we're with her. "'It's just in case. "'She'll sleep most of the time.' Lucy didn't respond to what she thought was the obvious. "'Agnes can't come,' Elizabeth said. "'I'll go get six hours sleep.' Relieve you after midnight. Then you can get rest. Lucy couldn't detect Elizabeth's motive. All the stay-awake shit was probably made up. She couldn't believe Elizabeth wanted to give her some time with her daughter. There had never been that kind of carry between them. True, Elizabeth probably was tired. But Elizabeth wouldn't worry. The staff was excellent. And Jennifer was tired, but not in danger of dying, for God's sake. An hour later, staff made rounds and explained that Jennifer was doing well and should soon be more alert. Lucy sat in a chair, standing often to watch her daughter. She was satisfied that she had come to visit. Jennifer was real to her now, not just memories. But she realized how proximity to family increased her stress now that she could sit quietly with her daughter. Lucy's mind wandered to the campaign. She was relieved to be away from Maria's increasingly vociferous attacks on staff and Fenley's constant need to control her every need and thought. "'Auntie?' Jennifer said, her eyes open and looking around the room. Lucy stood up and went to the bed. "'It's Mommy. Auntie will be back in a little while,' she said. She reached for Jennifer's hand, but Jennifer reached for the call button that was next to the pillow. "'Juice,' Jennifer said. "'I'll get it for you, baby,' Lucy said, taking the call button away.' and draping it over the side of the bed railing. She could have called for the nurse, but she suddenly had a fear that Jennifer in some way would reject her. She'd called out for Auntie. That couldn't be surprising. Yet she hadn't seemed surprised when Mommy was there. She seemed to take it as a matter of course. She was only a child. Maybe she hadn't built up the hatred for her that Lucy dreaded from the rest of the family. Lucy brought juice back to Jennifer and tried to help her drink, but Jennifer sat up and took the carton in both hands, sucking on the straw. Lucy took the carton from Jennifer when she'd finished, threw it away, and returned to the bedside. You're such a big girl now, and so pretty. Jennifer smiled and lay back. Are you going to school? I drew a picture. A picture? What did you draw a picture of? Of Mommy. Of me? Of me? It was big. She took Jennifer's hand. Do you like school? Jennifer nodded vigorously. I know all the dinosaurs. Really? Do you sing songs, too? Jennifer nodded again. Can you sing me a song? Jennifer smiled shyly, lowered her chin. Please, for me, Lucy said. Slowly and softly, Jennifer sang. Head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. Head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. Touching her head, shoulders, knees and toes with both hands. Lucy smiled and clapped in rhythm. Jennifer laughed without losing a beat. That was excellent. You are a very good singer. I know Frère Jacques, too. Would you sing that for me, too? Jennifer nodded again and sang Frère Jacques. She leaned back when she had finished. Lucy couldn't help leaning over and kissing her again. That was wonderful. Would you like me to read you a story? Jennifer looked at her as if deciding, a blank stare without emotion. More like she was thinking about something else, something about Mommy. Maybe realizing this was Mommy, but she wasn't sure what that really meant. You choose, Lucy said. Jennifer still stared at her. Lucy was beginning to be uncomfortable. She went to her shoulder bag and unwrapped the book she had bought at the airport. She opened the book, standing by the bedside, so Jennifer could see the pages. Cinderella. And she began to read. Once, there was a widower who married a proud and haughty woman as his second wife. She had two daughters who were equally vain. By his first wife, he'd had a beautiful young daughter, who was a girl of unparalleled goodness and sweet temper. Jennifer followed the story with her finger and seemed to turn the pages at the right time without a prompt. Maybe she already had this book. Toward the end, Jennifer's eyes closed. Lucy knew she was still listening. Jennifer wanted to hear the prince had come. Lucy finished. Ever after. And then Jennifer was asleep. Lucy leaned over the rail and kissed her forehead. She pulled up the sheet to her chin. She went to the window to put her book with two stacks of other books, and she saw the same book, well used, near the top of one stack. She put her book on top anyway and went back to sit in the chair. She felt a full sense of contentment, even though she was crying. Elizabeth returned after one o'clock a.m., She okay? Elizabeth asked. Fine. Can I stay? You get some sleep, Elizabeth said. Come back in the morning. She'll be up and running around. Lucy gathered her shoulder bag, gave Jennifer another kiss, and went to the elevator. She exited the elevator on the ground floor and walked the corridor to the lobby where a covered walkway led to the hotel. As she crossed the lobby, she heard her name. She turned... A uniformed sheriff's deputy stepped up to her. Lucy McMill, he said. She didn't answer. He held out a large white envelope. She didn't take it. He shoved it in her open bag and left. She stood there shaken as she opened the envelope. She knew what it was. She was a lawyer. Still, it was a surprise. A subpoena. She was to appear in court two weeks from today. Luke Osborne... "'versus Lucy McMeal. Divorce. "'Shit,' she said. "'She imagined them waiting for an opportunity to serve her, "'Luke getting the lawyer to wake the process server "'to get her before she left the state. "'You bastard,' she said aloud, seeing Luke in her mind. "'She couldn't sleep well, "'knowing she might see any of the family again, "'and left for the airport before five the next morning "'to catch the earliest flight possible.' back to California. Chapter 43 Lucy Lucy held daily sessions with Maria for more than two weeks preparing for her debate. Lucy drilled Maria daily on the majority of important issues, outlining the controversies, laying down facts, and how to explain her position. With guidelines, of course, that had already been laid down but the first of three nationally televised debates because of the crucial positioning of the district in the state would bring heavy emphasis on Maria's position on international affairs. Maria cared nothing about international affairs. She had never been out of the country, and she couldn't find Russia, much less Great Britain, on a World Globe a decorator placed in her Washington office. Maria voted the party line on every international issue, and she never spoke to any question ever posed about the world, instead slipping her answers to her favorite and usually unrelated themes that were mostly local and of interest to her constituency. A few days before the first debate, staff gathered to conduct mock interviews with questions. Maria turned blank on many of the international issues, forgetting the sides of an issue, and sometimes mispronouncing a country's name so erroneously that it was obvious she couldn't spell it and had rarely seen it written out. In the staff meeting three days before debates began, the only topic was the discussion about debate preparation. "'How am I doing?' Marie asked her staff. She was leaning her backside against a metal desk, her legs straight out, her hands back for support. She was wearing a tracksuit of light green polyester and had her hair in a ponytail held with a rubber band." Henry Sid slouched in an overstuffed chair, his leg draped over the arm. Paula Juarez was stretched out, belly down on the floor, her head supported by her hands, her elbows on the floor. Fenley sat in a folding chair backward, his folded arms on the top of the curved metal back. Lucy stood near him, leaning against a bookcase. The atmosphere was dense and dulled with fatigue and weariness from no sleep. Maria smoked a cigarette, the ashtray on the desk overflowing with butts. Finley held a can of Diet Coke "'that Lucy knew had been fortified with bourbon "'from his ever-present flask. "'After a silence, Maria said, "'I'm paying you fuckers to speak up. "'How am I doing?' "'Great,' Henry said unenthusiastically. "'Don't bullshit me. "'I'll never be great, "'but I want to beat Waring's ass into the fucking ground. "'You're doing good,' Henry said. "'Maria dragged on her cigarette.' "'Paula?' "'Paula gained some time by twisting into a sitting position "'with her arms around her knees. "'It's coming along,' she said. "'How do I bury the fucker?' "'Paula didn't respond. Fenley spoke. "'Keep working to build confidence in the issues. "'You can't let the insecurity leak out. "'You've got to be decisive. "'If you're on the fence about anything, Waring can destroy you. "'How will he do that?' "'Maria asked. Fenley raised his hand. "'I'll be wearing. "'Lucy, you be the moderator. "'Ask a tough question.' "'Jesus Christ, we do this thirty times a day,' Maria said. "'Put out the cigarette,' Fenley said. "'Stand up straight, both feet solid on the floor. "'Keep your hands still and use them only when you want to emphasize a point. "'Don't patronize me. "'You'll be standing during the debate.' Maria stood and put out her cigarette. Lucy began. "Uh, Congresswoman Sanchez, the unprovoked Iraq attack on the USS Stark cost 37 American lives. Are you satisfied with the administration's response? Lucy was pleased that Maria took a deep breath, remembering her instructions. No, I'm not. Um... "'The administration has repeatedly been slow to react to threats on our troops, Uh, "'troops that serve their country without concern for their personal safety, "'troops that are underpaid, "'and they spend years away from their families. "'That's wrong.' "'Lucy turned her head to Fenley. "'Mr. Waring?' "'I share the Congresswoman's concern for our troops. "'They are brave and dedicated soldiers.' but the administration gave careful consideration to our interest in the Gulf. And given our dedication to protection of the oil lanes, I agree that our troops need support, but I am sure that withdrawal was not an option at the time. In considering Iraq provocation, it was appropriate to consult the Saudis who seemed to find the issue complex from the Arab point of view. No military response was right, "'and the concept of carefully considered action "'on diplomatic and undercover fronts "'seemed prudent and pragmatic. "'Congresswoman,' Lucy said. "'Rebuttal?' "'That is so typical of Mr. Waring. "'He ignores that America will be seen as weak. "'What's happened to our leadership in the world? "'No one fears us anymore. "'Any crazed dictator can kill our citizens, "'and Mr. Waring prefers that we don't support "'our men and women who are fighting on the line.' She paused. There was a silence in the room. "'Well, speak out,' Maria said. "Uh, "'Not bad,' Henry said. "'He'll bury you,' Fenley said. Maria leaned back against the desk. Her face creased with concern. She lit a cigarette. "'Look,' Paula said. "'You sounded sincere and forceful. That was good.' "'It's what I said, isn't it?' Maria said." "'You didn't address the question,' Lucy said. "'I don't give a fuck about the question,' Maria responded. "'You've got to give a fuck,' Henry said. "'You're a congresswoman. "'You voted the Democratic line. "'Give them the reasoning for your vote. "'That's what Fenley did.' "'No one cares about the Gulf,' Maria said. "'They care about our troops.' "'You've got to appear competent and in control. "'It's not good to talk about loosely related ideas.' "'It erodes confidence in your leadership,' Henry said. "'Is that what you think, Lucy?' Maria said. "'We'll add the gulf to our agenda,' Lucy said. "'Fenley spoke up. "'If you don't have a considered answer, "'or if you don't think you're going to come across "'strong with the answer you've got, "'don't answer the question.' "'I've got to say something,' Maria said. "'Gracefully declined to comment. "'Make the grounds legitimate,' Lucy said.' You could say, Fenley said. You're carefully considering all aspects of the issue and will need more historical perspective to judge the administration's response. That seems a little insincere, Paula said. Fenley shrugged. It's the right idea, believe me. Give me another question, Maria said. Lucy gave many more, for more than an hour. Maria tired and said she didn't want to do any more. Lucy spoke up as they were about to break up. "'Wait,' she said. "'I think we've got to consider an option we've not talked about. "'We might need to make up a believable excuse to cancel at least the first debate.' "'Political suicide,' Henry said. "'I'm not sure we can be ready in time,' Lucy said. "'I agree,' Fenley said. "'Maria flushed with anger. "'Don't you go against me, you bitch,' she said to Lucy.' Lucy paused, her muscles tensed. "'Deep down, I don't care what happens to you in your asshole campaign,' she retorted. Maria shook her head. "'God, I don't deserve this.' "'Stop bickering,' Henry said. "'It's an option you have to consider,' Fenley said. "'Look at Nixon's debate. It buried him. You're a fool to let it happen.' "'Shut up,' Maria said.' "'I'll do this debate in spite of you. "'I am the better candidate, and I'll show them.' "'Maria picked up her shoulder bag to leave, "'snubbing out a cigarette. "'Do you still want to do the afternoon practice?' "'Lucy asked as Maria was leaving. "'Of course I want to do the afternoon session,' "'Maria shouted. "'She looked back at Lucy. "'Bitch.' "'The door slammed. "'She didn't mean it,' Paula said to Lucy. Fenley laughed without humor.' Well, she convinced me. Chapter 44 Lucy. The debate was staged at a regional TV station and fed to most of the country on cable, although coverage was not close to national. The party seemed satisfied with less coverage than anticipated and openly expressed serious concern over Maria's capabilities in front of an audience, much less in a one-on-one debate. The male moderator, more local good-looking celebrity than newscaster, perched on a stool next to a female political analyst who was seated behind a desk with the station's logo on it. Maria and the challenger, Mr. Waring, were positioned side by side, each behind a podium, The fifty auditorium seats were half-filled. Lucy and the staff sat in the front row seats away from cameras so Maria could have a direct view of their silent but animated assessments of how she was doing. The format was a question directed at one debater with time for the opponent to also comment, and then rebuttals of less than two minutes possible for each candidate. The moderator made the introductions, and the analyst missed rarity who began her questions, her egg-white teeth shining, her flowing long hair glittering on her shoulders, her plain, no-power lenses in dark-rimmed glasses accenting the sincere brown of her eyes in an attempt to intellectualize her obvious craving for a memorable star image. The first question, by toss of a coin, went to Mr. Waring about his weak record of legislative experience. The next question went to Maria about the Gulf War. Lucy cringed without sound or movement, but Maria handed back what she'd been coached, although she confused Iraq with Iran until the moderator corrected her. When Maria finished with the Gulf War, Fenley gave Lucy a shrug and a smile to let her know it wasn't as bad as he expected. With the next few questions, Maria responded with increasing hesitancy. Lucy could see her confidence seeping away and fear taking hold. Lucy held up a fist and raised it high when Mr. Waring was talking. Maria saw her, but didn't look any more confident. In the rebuttals, she was losing focus, and her voice was becoming strident and irritable. Fenley poked Lucy in the ribs with his elbow. There was nothing they could do. On the last question of the debate, Mr. Waring was asked his view of abortion. "Uh, "'Yes, Miss Rarity, I am glad that you asked that question.' I wish to be very clear that my personal feelings about abortion will not be used to influence voters in this election. It is a complex issue that generates high emotions on both sides. The courts now are repeatedly addressing the question and legislation that stands continues to be tested. I personally will not let my views affect what I perceive to be the will of the majority of my constituency. If called to act... While I am in office, I will be guided by the will of the majority of the people. "'It's a bullseye,' Fenley whispered to Lucy. She dreaded the next few seconds. Uh, "'Congresswoman Sanchez,' the moderator said. "'Your response?' "'I will not allow evasion on the part of my opponent,' Maria looked away from the camera lens and addressed Waring directly. "'What is your position on abortion?' "'Mine is pro-life,' "'It always has been. It always will be. "'Voters deserve to know your feelings.' "'Waring continued to face the camera. "'Again, I will be objective "'when and if the legislative action is presented to me. "'I will work for the will of my American constituency.' "'What do you believe?' said Maria. "'She spoke forcefully, "'as if she had him now in the grip of her claws.' Finley had his hand on Lucy's forearm. Waring continued. My personal opinion is that the government should remain out of the issue, that each woman should have the choice, that they should be given the benefit of as much information as possible to help them make the decision, and when appropriate, through health care, and only when appropriate, should be provided treatment, no matter what her choice might be, "'But I emphasize, I will not force this will on the people. "'I will serve, not command.' "'You want to kill the unborn,' Maria said loudly. "'You have no respect for human life.' "'Not true,' Waring said. "'I have the greatest respect for human life, "'and I have respect for the rights of a mother "'regarding what she feels might be right for her offspring.' "'but I will not let my feelings change my service "'to the majority of our community. "'I will act in accordance with the will of the people "'as it is expressed at the time. "'In my view, that is what an elected official should do. "'Elected officials should not contribute "'to the murder of innocents, "'living organisms that cannot defend themselves,' Maria said. Fenley's grip on Lucy's arm tightened. "'She shared his apprehension.' A complicated issue to end our discussion, the moderator started to close out. "'Make him commit, one way or the other,' Maria interrupted. "'I would like to thank both of you—it's immoral,' Maria said. Fenley groaned. The camera zoomed in on the moderator, removing images of the candidates from the screen. Maria tried to say something, but they had turned off her microphone. There was hesitant audience applause. A commercial came on the monitor after the moderator said goodnight. The audience started talking all at once. "'She's an idiot,' Fenley said. Paula leaned over. "'It wasn't too bad, was it?' "'A disaster,' Fenley said. "'We've got to script every public appearance, even the debates,' Lucy said. "'She can't speak anything that hasn't been written for her and memorized.' "'She'll never do it,' Henry said, who had come to hunker down in front of them. "'She might when she reads the commentary,' Fenley said. "'The commentators, seated behind a semicircular desk "'invisible on the station's monitors, "'were already discussing Maria's performance, but there was no sound. "'It's the only way I'll continue,' said Fenley. "'Maria came to them from behind the podium, down two steps, "'and across the few feet to where they were sitting.' I nailed the son of a bitch, she said. There was a brief silence. You did great, Paula said. But everyone else was silent. Lucy forced a smile and reached out and shook Maria's hand. Well, what do you think? Maria asked. We've got some work to do, Lucy said. Fenley did not offer his hand. Never again. No more spontaneous responses, he said. Fuck you, Maria said. My point exactly, Fenley said. He backed away. Chapter 45 Lucy A few days later, Lucy spent the night with Fenley. It was after seven. They were sharing a pepperoni pizza with extra cheese, a bottle of wine for Lucy, and beer with a whiskey chaser for Fenley. I was at the bank today, filling out a deposit form, Lucy said. My divorce settlement check came in. No alimony? None. No custody agreement? I thought they always favored the mother. The judge probably wasn't impressed that I didn't show up. I was tired of fighting. I thought the lawyers were good, Fenley said. I sent them enough money for the best. They thought I'd lose the trial, and the cost would have been over 200000 they suggested settlement for as much cash as I could get. How much? Fenley asked. Fifty five thousand. That's peanuts. They thought I was lucky. And it covered what I owed. Well, at last you're free, Fenley smiled. She remained serious. I was at the counter at the bank window. I saw you come out of Kyoto's restaurant. You got in a sedan. I hope to get my license reinstated, Fenley said. It was Tom Blanchard driving, wasn't it? Fenley had a quizzical look on his face. Oh, you're thinking about lying to me? Lucy asked. Never, he said. But it's a little inappropriate to be riding around with Waring's campaign manager in public before the election. Are you going to deny that? Lucy said without rancor. But she threw him a glance of interest. Never lie to you, Fenley said. What was it about? I've known him for years. But during a campaign... He pulled off another triangle of pizza. He wasn't fat, really, but he was beginning to look worse, like he didn't care for himself. Weak and skinny flabby. And she wondered why he was hesitant about Tom Blanchard. Why would Blanchard pick him up? That had dawned on her... Why hadn't she suspected it before, she thought. A slice of pepperoni slipped off his pizza as he took a bite. He left it on the floor where it landed. ''Are you working for Blanchard?'' she asked. Fenley laughed. ''You are,'' Lucy said. "Uh, ''Not exactly.'' ''What does that mean?'' Lucy asked. Fenley was smiling. ''You don't like her any more than I do,'' he said. "'I'm not selling her out,' Lucy said. "'Is that what you're doing?' "'Of course not. "'I've given the campaign all I have,' Fenley said. "'What were you doing then with Blanchard?' "'It's not what you think.' "'You're incorrigible,' "'Lucy said, but she was still smiling at him. "'Just perceptions, "'observations. "'And he pays you?' Fenley laughed again. "'Not much. "'Did you set up that abortion shit?' Not at all. I let him know she felt strongly about it. That was all. I don't like her, but I don't think I can let you go on, Fenley. <laughs> it's sleazy. We don't have anyone embedded in her campaign staff. I learned stuff from Blanchard. That's duplicitous, Lucy said. Pragmatic and profitable. I'll share it with you always, Fenley said. Cancel that. I don't like her, Lucy said. She's a lousy representative. And she's stupid. But I can't go against her. Panetta sent me to help her get elected. You are doing your best. No one could think otherwise. Not if I know you're a spy. I'm not a spy, Lucy. I'm involved in the political game. I enjoy it. And it's not all for money. It's like playing Monopoly. It's fun to have control of the board. It's unethical, Lucy said. Not at all. I'm sharing information. For money. Being paid for information is not unethical. She finished off her glass of wine and stood to clear the coffee table of pizza debris. I don't like it, she said. I'll stop then, Finley said. To make you happy. It's not the money, and I really don't care. He frowned. She wasn't sure if she could believe him. Really, he said. Never again. Two weeks later, after a four-day bus excursion through the district with Maria, staff met in the dairy headquarters. Three members had been added to supervise phone solicitation and to expand mailings. Henry Sid reviewed progress and then nodded to Maria to speak. She thanked her staff, commended them for their work. I'd like to announce, she said, We've signed for a pre-election day debate with Waring. We'll be starting preparation immediately. Lucy asked about the format, the moderator, if topics could be submitted ahead of time and restricted. We can submit topics, Maria said. Of course. No freewheeling discussions, Fenley asked. Would that be a debate then, Mr. Cooper? Maria asked. You need written-out responses for every contingency, Fenley said. Oh, I'll be prepared. I can guarantee you that, Maria said. The last debate had been almost uniformly criticized from many aspects, yet Maria continued to think her performance a success. Maria glanced around the members of the staff. I want each of you to feed Lucy ideas. We were short on originality at the last debate. Lucy bristled. "'You don't like my work. Find someone else,' she said. "'Don't be so sensitive. I'm just asking for help.' "'You're no Ronald Reagan,' Lucy said. "'Don't get uppity,' Maria said. Lucy's hands were tight-fist, but she said no more. That night Lucy went back to Sausalito, to Carrie Malroy's place. Carrie was gone, and Lucy needed to be alone.' She would never forgive Maria for talking down to her in front of staff. Never. Chapter 46 Elizabeth Services for Jennifer were at Agnes' church. Elizabeth sat with Luke and Agnes on the front row for family. Luke spoke, and Elizabeth did too. As Elizabeth said words for her niece... She saw Lucy seated alone near the back. Lucy gave no recognition that she knew Elizabeth had seen her. When Elizabeth sat back down and the minister had begun a sermon for the occasion, Elizabeth leaned to Luke and whispered, Lucy. Luke nodded. I'll invite her, Elizabeth said. Luke flashed a questioning look and then shrugged almost imperceptibly. When the service ended... "'Elizabeth circled the crowd of sympathizers "'that surrounded Luke and Agnes "'and sought out Lucy. "'Ride with us,' Elizabeth said to Lucy "'without greeting. "'Please.' "'After a few seconds' consideration, "'Lucy nodded acceptance. "'Elizabeth did not expect Lucy "'to thank her for calling to tell her about Jennifer, "'and Lucy, as the day progressed, "'said nothing more. "'The stretch limo was hot.' THE THERMOSTAT WAS BROKEN, THE DRIVER SAID. IT WAS OBVIOUS THE AIR CONDITIONING WASN'T FUNCTIONING. ELIZABETH FELT SWEAT UNDER HER ARMS AND WORRIED THAT HER DRESS MIGHT STAIN. LUCY SAT NEXT TO AGNES, ACROSS FROM LUKE AND ELIZABETH. AGNES'S TWO SISTERS SAT IN THE REAR. WHERE IS FATHER? LUCY ASKED. AGNES WAS THE FIRST to ANSWER AFTER A LONG SILENCE. STRANGE YOU SHOULD ASK THAT, SHE SAID. Elizabeth wasn't sure what Agnes meant. She thought Lucy deserved an answer. Fathers had a difficult time at the hospital, Elizabeth said. He's ignored us, Agnes said. His own granddaughter, Elizabeth thought, and the only one in the family who knew besides Luke and her that Jennifer truly was his granddaughter. Thanks for coming, said Luke to Lucy. I didn't come for your thanks, Lucy said harshly. Of course not, he said. She was my daughter, Lucy said defensively. And Luke's, thought Elizabeth, and my niece by blood, not just legal adoption. But she said nothing. You don't deserve to be here, Agnes said to Lucy. Mother, Elizabeth said, I'm saying what everyone thinks, what must be said. I shouldn't have asked Lucy to ride with us, Elizabeth thought. Lucy remained silent and stared ahead. "'Jennifer always had your picture by her bed this last year,' Luke said to Lucy. "'And she slept without fail with a Cinderella book,' she said was your gift. Lucy's face didn't change. "'I carry her picture in my wallet, the one you sent me in Africa,' she said. "'That means nothing,' Agnes said. They rode silently for many minutes. Finally, one of Agnes's sisters said, "'We're almost there.' Lucy stood away from the family at the grayside ceremony. Elizabeth didn't see when Lucy left, just knew she was no longer there, and then, at the reception, even when she got involved in the flood of sympathy from relatives and friends, Elizabeth still noticed that Lucy had not come. Chapter 47 Lucy The next Saturday night back in California, alone at Carrie's apartment, Lucy had cheese and rice crackers with a bottle of wine for dinner, and sat with her head back in an overstuffed chair with her eyes closed. The doorbell rang. She decided it was probably not for her. The bell rang again. Lucy, a man's voice said, open up. Probably Fenley. He was getting possessive recently. She opened the door a crack. Let me in. Howard Bain said. Lucy hesitated, and he pushed the door open with enough force to make her stumble backward. You just can't force... I want you to come back, he said. I love you. I've been acquitted. I didn't know, she said. The ministry is growing again. I'm back on international TV. I want you back. Her heart was beating fast for the need of him. He was never indefinite, Never indifferent. Always exciting. She resisted throwing herself against him, putting her arms around his neck, kissing that husky-smelling mouth. Let him do what he would. That's crazy, she said. I filed for divorce from my wife. I want to take you back. I can't, Howard. I've got a job. I'm working for a campaign. After the campaign, then, I was crazy in Africa. I should never have let you go. I was poisoned, Lucy said. It was Manny. I know of no other explanation. Did she confess? No. She disappeared. And I've come to believe it was her. I think Colette thought so, too. Why have you come here? To be sure you wouldn't say no. He started toward her, but she backed away. It's a new life, he said. Sit down, she said. I'll get you a drink. Tell me about it and all your friends. She brought him a ginger ale with ice and had a wine for herself. He told her. Colette was well, still working at the African mission, now headed by a native minister. Carla, and over a hundred and ten of the converts had returned with him to Georgia. Lucy was glad for him. He seemed a new man, and she felt comfortable that now her initial faith in his innocence was not folly. How did you get the conviction overturned, she asked. The girl recanted her testimony. It was the mother who pushed her to lie. Lucy replenished his glass and then sat and leaned toward him. You're a powerful man. I care for you. But we're in different stages of our lives now. I can't go with you, Howard. I don't like Georgia. It's our life, Lucy. Our life to nurture "'to let grow. "'I just can't,' she said. "'Although she wanted to be with him again, "'she couldn't imagine returning to Georgia "'with all the memories lurking there. "'She said no again. "'He made love to her. "'She let him, wanted him, "'and he didn't leave until the next morning. "'Even when she told him no again, "'he was determined to convince her. "'Finally he left. "'Even though it was late morning,' She finished a bottle of wine so she could quell the turmoil in her, and she finally fell into a troubled light sleep until mid-Sunday afternoon. Chapter 48 Lucy Lucy and Fenley were alone in the mailroom, sitting across from each other at a long, rectangular, drop-leaf table. On the table between them were stacks of letter-sized envelopes, all addressed, stamped, and pre-sorted. Each of them also had a stack of single-sheet flyers. They took flyers one by one, folded them in half, took an envelope, removed the flyer that had been printed wrong with libelous errors, and inserted the correct flyer. Lucy could do three to Fenley's one, even more when he paused for a sip from his flask. "'I'm getting shit-faced,' he said." Lucy threw a removed, useless flyer on the floor where it landed on top of hundreds of others. Doesn't this piss you off? Fenley asked. Of course it pisses me off, Lucy thought. Everything done with or for Maria pissed her off now. The printer make the mistake? Fenley asked. Or that jerk of a marketer. No one admits a mistake, and no one agreed to pick up the bill for reprinting. Finley leaned back, adding a little whiskey from his flask to a can of Diet Coke, and took a swig. This campaign sucks, he said. She's a fucking idiot, capable of single-handedly sinking the American dream. Like an enemy gunship torpedo heading toward a Carnival cruise ship, Lucy said. Finley sipped Coke again without starting back on his task. You're good at this he said, holding up an envelope. I don't want to be good at this, Lucy said. Why do it, Fenley said. Lucy stopped and looked at him. She said nothing. You don't like her any more than I do, Fenley said. She started back on the envelopes. Not one little bit, she said. Her philosophies, or lack of, she's stupid. It's the only thing that qualifies her to be a political candidate. Lucy smiled. I don't like her mouth. I don't like her screaming at me for things I had no control over. She doesn't have a whiff of courtesy. Or good sense. She's turning everyone off. She's been calling me bitch a lot. Quit. It's a job, Finley. Panetta supports her. She had the gall to tell me to make the back lease payments on the bus. You can afford it, she said. I told her to fuck off. I was through supporting her. It wasn't fun anymore. And you weren't accepting checks from the opposition, Lucy laughed. Fenley laughed and took her hand. You want to know the truth? You've never stopped accepting checks, Lucy said. He let go of her hand. You frosted, he asked. I hope she flops, she said. They worked for a while. "'You're writing out all the responses for the debates,' Fenley said. "'She's memorizing them. "'Why not write them just the way she'd say them? "'Misinformation, fuzzy thinking, spontaneous misunderstandings?' "'The opposition must have doubled your pay,' Lucy said. "'He stopped his work. "'It's not that,' Fenley said. "'I don't think she should be elected. "'She shouldn't be in any public office with any power.' "'Lucy stopped working.' I hate her enough. You should fight back, Fenley said. She's out of control now. I'd have to stop practice sessions with the staff. They'd make corrections. How many more do you have, Fenley asked. Three. Claim urgency. Get her into self-destruction in private. She wouldn't know, Lucy said. She never credits any of us for helping with the public persona. It might work. Of course it will work, Fenley said. Screw this, Lucy said. She picked up the remaining stack of uncorrected envelopes and fed them into a shredder at the end of the table. We'll work on it tonight. I have a session with her in the morning. We'll focus on abortion, Fenley said. Drug legalization, foreign policy. And the economy. I could feed her false facts there she wouldn't know. Yippee, Fenley said. Lucy shook her head in disbelief with what Fenley could come up with. Sometimes she thought he was psychotic. That sounds like they tripled your pay. You wouldn't believe me if I told you the truth, Fenley said. The election eve debate was better attended and better watched on TV than any other event, even local sports. Maria and Waring were seated facing each other with the moderator in the middle. The format was answer with unlimited time rebuttals except at the moderator's discretion. Maria had worked hard with the responses. When she started, her delivery had definitely improved and she answered questions with less bird-like Twitter than usual. The indoctrination of strange ideas and false data had an immediate effect on Waring's responses as well as the follow-up questions by the moderator. Waring seemed to progressively get clear in etching out the differences between Maria and him. The moderator corrected Maria's misstatements and couldn't keep out the definite tone of incredulity in his voice. Toward the end of the half-hour, Maria had moments of doubt, and she began to see Waring and the moderator as picking on her. She became the feminine alien victim of the prejudice she perceived. She perceived. You wouldn't say that to a man, she said, after one rebuttal. And at the end, Don't you think because I'm Hispanic that you can belittle me? No one could belittle her, Lucy whispered to Fenley. Except you, Fenley whispered back, smiling. On election eve at party headquarters, Maria, staff, and supporters milled around drinking and talking. After the first hour of early results, there was no laughter, and the mood turned somber and sour. Maria's face showed a flush of crushing humiliation, and she retreated into a private room where only close staff were allowed. She sat in a chair, rarely talking, staring at a TV with election coverage from San Francisco, interrupted only by Paula, who gave her updates. Maria made no attempt to appear upbeat. She knew the worst. A short time later, Henry Sid clanked two glasses together for attention. There were fewer than twenty people in the room, and silence quickly descended. We've got to consider a concession speech. The sooner the better, Sid said. No, said Maria. No one spoke. Finally, Henry moved closer to her and sat in a folding chair. You owe it to your supporters. The party needs you to keep the faithful. Maria looked up. Her face flushed, her eyes angry. Get out, all of you. The concession speech, Henry pleaded. If you want it so bad, Henry, give it yourself. It's traditional. Give the speech, Henry, and get the fuck away from me. Lucy felt a touch of pity for Maria. She had climbed beyond her capabilities. She'd learned to ride a balloon-tired bike with training wheels attached. And then... She tried to ride in a long-distance race on a racing bike. She'd lost her balance and crashed. And she would have crashed on her own without Fenling and her help. The thought made Lucy feel a little more justified. Stay here, Lucy, Maria said as Lucy started to follow the others out of the room. Maria stood and came to her. I'm not stupid, Lucy. I know what you did. It was inhuman, Lucy saw Maria's pain, saw that under the tough exterior Maria had created for her protection during the campaign, there was more of a person than had been evident. Lucy resisted her first instinct to defend herself, to point out the unnecessary, crude criticism she had been subjected to for the past few months for the lack of appreciation for what she and all the staff had sacrificed. Any guilt Lucy had for Maria's failure disappeared. "'Pull yourself together, Maria,' Lucy said. "'You're acting like a child.' "'Ah, fuck it. "'Go out there. "'Give that speech. "'Be as gracious as you can be.' "'Nobody wanted me to win,' Maria whined. "'Always the victim,' Lucy said. "'Take some responsibility. "'You were a shitty candidate.' "'Maria looked like she might strike her. "'Maria groped for control, "'and after a few seconds she relaxed a little.' She turned and went toward the room with the cameras. Henry Sid had already ascended to the podium and had started speaking. Maria entered the glare of the spotlights. "'Get off,' she said, loud enough that the microphones picked it up. Henry stopped in mid-thought and moved aside. Maria demeaned the opponent's tactics. She railed against the district's lack of support. When she finally thanked those who had worked for her, it was meaningless.' I still hate her, Lucy thought. Chapter 49 Lucy. For weeks after the campaign loss, Lucy worked for Panetta in San Francisco. She moved what little she had at Fenley's house to carry Malroy's place in Sausalito. She worked as assistant to the medical malpractice division, collecting evidence and directing investigators tracking down records, filing freedom of information documents. She didn't want to go to Fenley's. She liked him, although she didn't trust him. But she never longed to be with him, and he had never captured her heart with his quick premature and unsatisfying lovemaking. And much of her time with him was trying to fathom his often bizarre thoughts through an alcoholic and drug-infested haze until he passed out. "'Fenley came to her at Carrie's place two or three times a week, "'and often on weekends. "'He'd let himself in during the day and wait. "'He always left if Carrie would be there for the night. "'Carrie had made it clear she didn't want Lucy to have Fenley "'or any man in the apartment when she was there. "'On a Monday morning, Lou Panetta called Lucy into his office "'as soon as she arrived at work. "'He was alone. "'He offered a cup of coffee that she accepted.' She was now drinking coffee regularly again after she was able to forget the suspicion of poison in the coffee in Africa. "'What's up, Lou?' she asked. "'Maria was here last week twice,' Benetta said. "'How is she?' "'Strange you should ask, Lucy. "'She seems suicidal to me. "'I doubt she's the type,' Lucy said. "'She was destroyed, Lucy. "'She was?' An inept candidate. But not stupid, Panetta said. She wasn't bright, Lou, and her emotions were out of control most of the time. Lou fingered the pages of a book with a purpose. She didn't deserve it, he said. Lucy pretended she didn't know what he meant. You know what I mean, Lucy. Maria brought the tapes of her speech. She told me how you coached her in private for the last few sessions. She blames you. She said what she wanted to say. She was insecure. She depended on you. She trusted me in recommending you. She cursed and swore at all of our efforts to help her. That's what I mean. She was insecure. She climbed up in a white male-dominated world. It was not easy for her, Lucy." Panetta's lack of perception of Maria's tired, unimaginative, always defensive ways of working with staff irritated Lucy. She was impossible, she said. I came to dislike her. She was a client, Lucy. You were working for her at my discretion. I expected you to treat her with respect. I worked day and night, Lou. I carried her through rally after rally. I gave you work when you were disbarred in Georgia. "'I respected your intelligence and liked you personally. "'You took advantage of my generosity. "'I don't accept that, Lou. "'I did more than most. "'You destroyed a woman who didn't deserve to be destroyed. "'She would have lost no matter who you sent to help her. "'Christ, the quality of her staff around her was miserable. "'Paula Juarez? "'Henry Sid? "'Fenley Cooper? "'She couldn't find anyone of quality. "'It was cruel, Lucy.' She wouldn't have humiliated herself on her own, for Christ's sake. You're an idiot, Lucy said. Panetta paused. You're fired. Lucy didn't hesitate. I quit. Eight weeks' separation pay, but don't come back to the office. Thanks for nothing, Lucy said. She left, her jaw clenched, without looking at Panetta. Lucy borrowed Carrie Mallory's car and drove north to spend the weekend with Fenley. He was with a group, organizing illegal farm workers to strike for benefits. Lucy failed to see the logic in his involvement and thought he endangered their staying in the States, but Fenley was passionate about his cause and was busy enough to not be drinking as much. His marijuana stockpile was twice that what he had a few months ago. With free time after the campaign, he'd returned to selling to dealers. "'Fenley felt as safe from the law as he ever had in his life, "'which was important since he was on probation "'from his last incarceration. "'Illegal sales were ignored by local authorities, "'but the feds scrutinized his every movement. "'The populace was eager to protect their sources, "'and they quickly notified Fenley of any danger of discovery. "'Lucy scolded him for the risk he was taking. "'He laughed and kissed her affectionately. "'A few weeks later... "'Fenley came to San Francisco for a concert, "'and after the concert Lucy went with him "'to an Italian restaurant in Calhoun. "'It wasn't crowded, and they chose a booth in the corner. "'Fenley wanted to talk about Panetta. "'He must have been thinking about Lucy's firing. "'Isn't there some legal action? Uh, "'Can't you uh, sue Panetta's ass?' "'Fenley said. "'Lucy had put it in the past. "'She had thought about some action, "'but couldn't find anything reasonable.' and being disbarred did not lend to the easy acquisition of the expense of an experienced help in labor law that she needed. "'You have rights,' Fenley said. "'I've thought of everything,' Lucy responded. "'I'll give you what you need if money's a problem,' Fenley said. "'Hire an investigator to find out where Panetta screwed up.' Lucy laughed. "'The man is going to die of cancer in less than a year. "'He shouldn't have fired you,' Fenley said." "'Maria was your idea,' Lucy said. "'The miscues? You thought it up, and it crippled her.' "'I didn't mean that,' Lucy said. "'We may have thought it up together. "'And you didn't do it. I did it.' "'He still shouldn't get off with firing you.' "'Lucy picked at a salad. She wasn't hungry now. "'He had his own reasons, Fenley. Let's forget it.' "'Fenley concentrated on twirling spaghetti bolognese on his fork cupped in a spoon.' Lucy thought it was time to tell him. She had no income. She wasn't getting along well with Carrie Malroy, and she was lonely. I'm going back to Georgia, she said. Fenley looked up and set his utensils on the plate. Why, he asked. There's nothing for me here. There's me, she smiled, the felon with a heart of fake gold. I'm restless. I need to find work, she said. "'I've got some friends that might help,' Fenley said. "'It's more than that. "'It's the preacher, isn't it? "'You've got to get back to him.' "'The truth of his words made her pause. "'He's a charlatan,' Fenley continued, "'a celebrity faith-healer without conscience. "'You don't know him,' Lucy said. "'I've looked him up many times, watched his shows. "'He's a crook.' "'Lucy laughed derisively.' "'Fenley had little justification "'to question the morality of Howard Bain. "'She wanted to go back to Howard. "'It was true. "'That was the main reason. "'But instead she said, "'I want to go back to be with family. "'You can't stand them. "'You're adopted. "'I'm more family than they are.' "'She didn't respond. "'After Jennifer's funeral, "'she had determined never to contact family again. "'Only Elizabeth had a wisp of kindness in her. "'You need money for the trip, don't you?' Fenley said. "'She needed money for everything. "'She didn't answer. "'I'll do it,' Fenley said. "'But you won't be happy, and I want you to promise "'when you're not happy, you'll come back here.' "'She looked away. "'Give me your word,' he said. "'You'll find someone else,' she said. "'You must promise,' he said. "'She looked back at him and stared for a few seconds.' Then she nodded, but she knew she would never return. Lucy duplaned and went to baggage-claim carousels at Atlanta's Hartsfield International Airport. She was searching her shoulder bag for the $100 bill Fenley had given her as emergency funds after he bought her ticket and new clothes. She was sure she couldn't find a taxi to take her to North Georgia for that amount, She was hoping to find a kid with a car who could use the extra cash when Howie stepped up to her. Her thoughts were confused at seeing him. She never thought he'd come to pick her up. Intense, mixed emotions robbed her of a response for a few seconds. Oh, my my, my bag, she said, pointing. Then she was laughing. Howie took her in his arms. The bag goes in circles, you goose. And she held him as to never let him go. Howard Bain. Where did the anger go when she was in his arms? Chapter 50 Lucy. Jason Campbell had come back to work for Howard Bain at the Georgia compound. In a few weeks, he had hired an organized staff. The television ministry had been rejuvenated by Howard's return and had again turned extremely profitable and Howard needed Campbell's investment skills. Lucy liked Jason better. That was a surprise. He seemed happy to have her back and frequently had lunch with her at the dining hall, asking her about Africa and detailing his plans for the church expansion. Lucy's days were now filled with exercise and reading. Howard suggested she join singing groups, but she had no talent and didn't like the drone of church hymns. She went to the small towns of Cashiers, Boone and Highlands, usually alone, but she did not like the arts and crafts that were hawked relentlessly in shops and on the streets. There was little entertainment in the towns, and she stopped her excursions after her first few weeks back. Jason Campbell mentioned the restlessness he saw in her. "'Why not come help us in the office?' he asked. At first she declined, but Howie thought it was a good idea.' She could write brochures, help with correspondence. After only a few days, Jason saw her capabilities at finance and began including her in meetings and strategic planning sessions for the church. The church had investments of more than $260 million accumulated over the years. Howard's operating funds were from pledges and donations, mostly TV. The church had continued to make a profit even while he was in Africa. New churches had been established in seven cities. A large portion of the income was invested in real estate and commercial properties. Since his return from Africa, Howard was flying in his private airplane, a twin-engine prop plane with a full-time pilot that connected him to Atlanta, Memphis, Nashville, Little Rock, and any place with a landing strip within an 800-mile range. Howard also built his four-bedroom house on the compound. He had hired a cook and a housekeeper, his appointment secretary had an office at the back of the ground floor near the kitchen. He had a private office near the bedroom on the second floor that he used for reading and writing in the evenings. Most of his daytime administration was in the new building, with four floors, each with 6,000 square feet. Jason soon gave Lucy her own office and a part-time secretary in the administrative building. He had assigned her to work with the church's Atlanta lawyer, as the on-compound contact for legal issues. The obvious wealth of the organization had spawned numerous lawsuits over a variety of issues. The threat of legal action against the Church had made Jason review all important correspondence for accuracy and libelous material, and he undertook periodic reviews of the grounds and buildings for potential liability issues. With time, he trusted Lucy, and she became the prime assistant in all legal issues. Although she didn't practice law, her experience became invaluable. Her life with Howard turned from serene to hectic within months. He was with her only two or three nights a week. During the day, she rarely saw him. He was building satellite churches and frequently spent days in other locations. He was expanding the weekly television ministry to other sites to draw crowds and increase membership. All the activity kept Howard away from the compound. But she was not unhappy. Their time together fulfilled her, and she loved him as much as always. And since she had returned, in his times with her, he had become supportive and attentive in ways that pleased her no end. Lucy picked up the phone at Jason's intercom request, Abe Singerman from Atlanta, whom she had met a few times over the years. I'm going over the Sienna Jones case, Singerman said. "'Do you know about it?' "'The name isn't familiar,' Lucy said. "'It's this crippled girl accusing Bain of assault "'they filed in federal court. "'What were the circumstances?' Lucy asked. "'She was in a healing session. "'She claimed she was lifted from her wheelchair "'and Bain told her to walk. "'She fell and fractured two vertebrae. "'She had some bone problem to begin with "'and her bones were soft from treatment.' and she claims all this aggravated this condition she inherited. They've got to stretch to make a salt stand, Lucy said. It's not a common argument that I know, but I think they'll make the pitch that Bain saw her as a profitable medical commodity, that he used her to garnish sympathy for the church and its causes. The church gives back to the sick, Lucy said. Not this girl. That they didn't do. There was not much enthusiasm to please for help, and the girl's insurance ran out years ago. She had no regular doctor, and most of her care was in emergency room visits where they couldn't turn her away by law. The mother's angry as shit. She wants Bain in jail for pain and suffering. I don't think there was any wrongdoing, Lucy said. I attended many of the Sunday night ministries. Some people are helped by the sessions. "'I know it well,' Singerman said. "'I find it useless tomfoolery. "'Those people go for the experience of being there, "'being seen, being talked to. "'Most of them live alone, watch TV all waking hours. "'Nothing happens in their lives. "'They come to Sunday night sessions "'and experience a part of something. "'That's not seeking medical science. "'That's just trying to belong, "'checking to be sure they're not alone, "'that they're alive.' "'You sound like the enemy,' Lucy said.' I'm telling you what I'm up against. Well, Howard Bain understands all that, and he tries to use his position to encourage and help Lucy said. I don't care about his status with God, Singerman said. Many sane human beings see him as assuming the adoration and excitement generated in his emotionally hyped sessions, this new sense of belonging to something as adoration for him. He loves the power it brings. He feels greater than life. Lucy sighed to herself. There was a lot of truth in what he said. What can I do? she asked. Get as much evidence as you can to prove there was no intent. I'm sure of it, she said. I know, Howie. He had no intent to hurt that girl for any reason, much less for profit. Your being sure won't help in court. Get anything you can find. I need it soon. This needs resolution before the papers get wind of it which the prosecution guys will do soon. Believe me, a lot of people don't approve of Bain. He's a complex man, Lucy said. I don't judge his motives or his results. I'm paid to keep him out of jail. Depending on the charge, you might get five to ten. I'll do what I can, Lucy said. Have you talked to Howard? Not for a while. I'll let him know what you've asked, Lucy said. Tell him to start praying, Singerman said. "'Don't be a cynic,' Lucy said. "'Don't you be callow.' Lucy waited until Abe Sinkerman could send her the charges and the supposed date for the trial depositions. The girl had been thoroughly investigated. Her father was unknown. A mother who made a living as a hairdresser brought her up with no other children. The girl attended school but never graduated. Her illness, which was lung and heart complications from some genetic disorder left her deformed. It was the third Sunday in July. Lucy went to the archives and retrieved the tape of the session. A technician set up a screening on a 14-inch TV and explained pause forward and reverse. Lucy fast-forwarded through the setup. Little Margo, the choir, the Save Me Jesus converts. She stopped. During Howard's sermon, she could see a girl in a wheelchair, old enough to be Sienna Jones. "'She was lined up among other sufferers. "'From two different views she could see "'at least two staff circulated among them. "'Then the televised view went back to Howie "'until the end of the sermon. "'She watched as sufferers were held back "'by the extended arm of a staff member "'until their turn came. "'When the laying of hands, the trembling, "'and the healing was over, "'other staff members stepped forward "'to lead the sufferers off. "'The flow was constant.' And once the next sufferer was released by a lowering of the arm, if the sufferer could walk alone, he or she started forward. Staff always assisted those who needed help. She watched as each one progressed. Sienna Jones was the seventh. Someone wheeled her out, not her mother. Howard Bain took one of the wheelchair handles and turned the chair so Sienna faced the audience. She had a small body, a large head, her thin arms gripped the side rails, and her bony legs were twisted so one foot splayed out, the other turned in. The crowd noise was intense, but she could hear Howard Bain say, reading from a card Sienna Jones, sick and infirmed, confined to this chair for half her life. Howard knelt beside the chair and looked into her face. Do you believe, Sienna? Do you take Jesus Christ as your Savior? "'Will you forever do the will of the Lord?' "'Sienna said something indistinguishable as a response. "'Speak out, Sienna. "'Shout to the world. "'I love you, Jesus. "'I believe.' "'And Sienna shrank with fear, "'but she yelled in a high, parchment-like voice, "'I love Jesus.' "'The crowd roared. "'I believe,' Howard urged her. "'I believe,' Sienna shouted, "'animated now by the crowd's energy, "'her face fearless for an instant.' Howard Baines stood and slipped his hands under her arms, lifting her high into the air like a father would a child, and then he lowered her slowly. He glanced to his right as if to see where the attendant was, and he held her out as to let her walk while he supported her weight. Walk to Jesus, my little lady. Take your first steps. And he moved forward slightly, catching his foot on the chair, and he stumbled, dropping her, going down on one knee. She hit the stage in a heap, the audience gasped. Then, in silence, as Howie was getting up and reaching out to her, she pushed herself up, pulled her legs up under her, and with concerted effort, partially stood. Seeing the amazement of the crowd, Howard stopped. "'Praise God!' he said into the microphone. An attendant was within a few feet of Sienna now, and she screamed in pain and toppled forward, landing on her shoulder and sliding to the edge of the stage before Howie or the attendant could get to her. She slipped over the edge, dropping five feet to the auditorium floor. The camera was off for now. The audience held its collective breath until a woman screamed. Howie stood. Praise God for this miracle. Sienna Jones has made her first steps for a full recovery. But even on the small screen, Lucy could see that Howie was shaken. He recovered quickly and signaled for the next sufferer. "'who was with him in seconds. "'He reached into his pocket for his cards. "'Palmer Espy suffers from recurrent headaches "'that would make him vomit, "'pain so bad he must go to bed for hours, "'weak and exhausted. "'Has anything helped you?' he asked the boy. "'The boy seemed to be explaining, "'and Howard leaned over for a few seconds "'and then turned to the audience "'while the boy was still talking. "'Nothing, nothing any doctor has given "'this young man has helped.' Nothing. Howie laid his hands on the boy's temples and turned his face to the heavens. Jesus, dear Jesus, relieve this believer of his suffering. Take the pain from his skull. Never let it return. He gave the boy's head a severe jolt. The boy looked around dazed. The crowd was with Howard now. Sienna was not to be seen, apparently carried out of the arena. Is the pain gone, my friend? Do you feel the change? Is the pain floating from your being while we speak? The boy threw his hands up. Yes, he yelled. The crowd roared again, now completely engaged. Sienna was mostly forgotten. It's gone, totally gone, Howie said. Yes, the boy yelled. Praise God. Two more healings were completed and the show ended with Howie and the speaker singing in a line in front of the choir, the camera sweeping the audience. Lucy ran the Sienna Jones segment four more times. The audience must have thought Sienna was all right. They recovered quickly. She wondered if the stumble could have been prevented. Was there liability? She wondered what the procedure was with a wheelchair-bound sufferer. She needed to talk to the staff. She called in the technician, showed him the tape segment, "'Who is that girl attendant?' she said. "'The one holding her arm out to hold them back. "'Pam Sessions,' he said. "'She's been doing that as long as I've been here.' "'Thanks,' Lucy said. Lucy introduced herself to Pam Sessions outside the dining hall. "'Everyone knows you, Miss McNeil, Pam said. Lucy suggested they have dinner together. "'Why?' Pam asked. "'There's nothing wrong. "'I want to know what the routines are during the show.' "'There's nothing special,' Pam said. "'Could we talk about it anyway?' "'Lucy decided to be straight about her purpose. "'I'm trying to find out what happened with Sienna Jones. "'Do you remember her?' "'Everyone remembers,' Pam said. "'They went through the cafeteria line, "'flashing their meal cards to the cashier. "'Lucy waited until they were seated across from each other "'at a table for two before asking questions. Pam's session seemed withdrawn. "'Lucy wondered,' what she had to hide. "'I've done nothing wrong,' Pam said. "'I don't believe anyone did anything wrong,' Lucy said. "'I just want to walk through what the routines were. "'There's a lawsuit, "'and I'm trying to aid in the Reverend Baines' defense. "'Sometime we're going to have to prove "'that everything was normal. "'I just have to understand what happened "'and that it wasn't something that could have been prevented.' "'I won't ever go to court,' Pam said. "'You won't have to go to court,' Lucy said.' How can you be sure? Can't they subpoena me? I'm as sure as I can possibly be. In fact, I doubt any of us will go to court. The church has hired excellent legal counsel. They ate in silence for a moment. How do you choose the order of the sufferers? Lucy asked. Do you do that? Pam didn't hesitate. Not me. Annie Parson does that. She's the director, she varies the conditions. That night Sienna was the second wheelchair sufferer. I think there was a headache, infertility, homosexuality before her. I can't remember the order. Are there instructions to them? Do they know if they'll walk alone? Each sufferer is given instructions. Introduced to the attendant responsible, if they can walk alone, they're encouraged to use the wheelchair for safety until they walk. Most of them need some guidance, and a staff member is assigned to take them out. An attendant waits to take them off the stage on the other side. I've never seen the Reverend lift someone out of the chair like that, Lucy said. He's done it many times. And he supports them in other ways, too. He'll encourage them to do what they think they can't. We all find it amazing. Some people are cured. No one is like him. But Sienna Jones looked incapacitated, Lucy said. Last year, 83%... Of the ambulatory physical deformities were thought to have total or partial severe mental components, Pam said. We've all agreed that Reverend Bain helps them over the mental barriers of their particular illness. He takes away their fears. He makes them feel that they can do it. And with the energy from the parishioners, every soul willing for success, the sufferers seem transformed sometimes. Did anyone know Sienna was injured, Lucy asked, The crowd seemed to move on to the next sufferer, almost as if they forgot about Sienna. We were all worried, Pam said. I saw her behind the stage curtains. She seemed not to have much pain unless she tried to move. Did she go to a hospital, Lucy asked? We have a nurse. I believe she looked at her and advised her to go to the emergency room at the hospital. But I don't know. I was back on stage left, getting the last sufferers ready. So nothing unexpected happened that night, Lucy said. Nothing abnormal? Uh, The Reverend Bain tripped? I'd never seen that happen. A big man, a small wheelchair. He must have caught his foot that threw him off balance with the weight of her. Did you ever see Sienna Jones again, after that night? No, Pam said. Someone must have. I don't know. But it was common practice for Nurse or Annie Pearson, the director, to contact believers who had been healed. There was always interest in how they improved. And do they get better? Lucy asked. Many do. A few don't. A small number claim to be worse. But I believe miracles happen. If I didn't, I wouldn't be doing this. Of course, Lucy said, and asked her about her schooling and her plans for the future. CHAPTER 51 LUCY Lucy surveyed mountains below as the church's twin-engine turboprop leveled off on a clear day. Two staff sat near the galley in the rear, and Hauer sat next to her working on redrafting an editorial opinion on a recent call to take away tax exemption for the church, a more than perennial threat from various dissenters. The engines reduced to a cruising power. They could now speak comfortably in the front of the plane, with the engines behind them, and without being overheard. "'Have you ever thought about just settling with Sienna Jones?' Lucy asked. Howard let his lead pencil fall to the tray table and placed his hand on it to keep it from rolling off. "'Why would we do that?' "'It might be the right thing to do,' Lucy said. "'It was an accident. "'To settle would admit we were at fault.' opened the floodgates for hundreds of suits. She reached to touch his arms, her eyes intent, a faint few wrinkle lines on her brow. A touch of a smile raised the corners of his mouth. I'm serious, she said, offended that he might be laughing at her. His face hardened with controlled sobriety. She suffered, she continued. She couldn't afford care. She didn't heal well. It was terrible. We gave her money for treatment. It wasn't for long, Hauer. He looked ahead as he spoke, and not at her. The mother wants millions. It was an accident. She fell off the stage. That's all lawyer talk. The mother really wants to have the best care for the girl. The girl will never get better. I've checked with experts. Hauer smiled. You've taken on her case. She looked out the window. "'Hey, it's okay,' he said. "'Don't diminish me,' she said. "'He turned over a sheet of paper and drew a happy smile face. "'He showed it to her. "'I'm not a child,' she said. "'But she wasn't as angry now. "'I'll tell Jason to settle,' he said, "'if that's what you want. "'It's more than that. "'It's what people are insinuating about the whole incident. "'Your reputation. "'They say you use health to promote your cause.' that your entire mission is a sham. You set it up to draw attention to the suffering, and then you pretend it's successful, when it often is not. And for some illnesses, what you do can delay effective treatment by competent physicians, sometimes even life-saving treatment. That seems the most damaging. Look to reality, he said. Every one of those sufferers has been to doctors without cures, often giving their life savings and without receiving one word of support. And don't doctors fail? Yes, they do. And often. And don't patients get worse? What we do for these poor souls, shunned by the system, denied by payers, often rejected by family and loved ones, is we let them become part of the spirit of what we do. You've seen it. You've seen the hope, the joy, the belief that it might get better, It turns their hearts from stone to life-pumping muscle. I saw that boy with epilepsy years ago. It happens two or three times a year. For some, it brings their condition out in public, making them less afraid to leave the house, letting them know that experiencing life doesn't mean sure death or even rejection. The bit I saw didn't seem to make him better. I don't remember him specifically, but I am sure he felt part of the audience. If he did feel a part, he felt he was a part of you. You're the one holding him, helping him breathe. He will think you saved him. And what is wrong with that? She knew his logic, knew there was some truth in what he was saying. You believe, Lucy said. Yes, there may be benefit from experience of the healing sessions, but you believe you are the one with a special gift. If you can do what I do, he said. Why was she in this discussion? She loved him. It wasn't just for this girl or some morally superior dedication. She wanted him to love her with the same intensity as she loved him. And she wanted him to need her. He cared for her, wanted her. She believed that. More than any woman, she was sure. But he couldn't really love her in the way she craved. And they would never be equal in love. She knew that. He was too involved with his image. An image mixed with divinity healing and promise of an eternal life. So why keep trying? Well, she couldn't do without him. That was all she could think of as an explanation, such as it was. You believe you have a divine gift to heal, don't you, she said. Ridiculous, he said. No, you think you're more than human. You're a little off course, he said, and his voice had turned cool and distant. You dropped this girl. I stumbled. I stumbled. And you've ignored her plight. How callous can you be? And all because you think of yourself as God's chosen disciple. Howard paused and then laughed. I see your point, Lucy. And you're right. I do have the sin of false pride on my conscience. But what I do does help. And I can't save those infidels without confidence in what I do. She couldn't erase her thought that the reason he delayed marrying her not just officially, but in his mind and heart, was his ever-present need to be God. It was what energized him and made him content, contentment that was his alone, never shared, and always above the contentment that most of the human race could ever know. Make sure Jason gives what Sienna deserves, she said. You have my word, he said. Chapter 52, Lucy Lucy stayed busy at the compound. She now edited promotional material and searched for ideas for Howie's sermons. She knew she'd upgraded his allegories, inserted some logic into his emotional rants, and encouraged him to correct his grammar, which he mostly ignored since he felt he needed to use grammatical errors that made his audience comfortable. She didn't argue since that had made some sense to her, She exercised daily. She enjoyed cooking meals, and they ate together when he was available. She contacted the office of the local congressional representative and had done volunteer work that she expected to grow into a paid campaign position as midterm elections neared. For the last few weeks, she'd felt a progressive fatigue. She barely left the house, afraid that when a wave of drowsiness hit her, she wouldn't have a place to lie down. She'd been to town to buy makeup. She was concerned that her face looked drawn and her skin sallow. For the first time, she used more makeup than the simple blush and eyeliner, covering her skin and highlighting her cheeks with rouge. Her mouth was dry, and she was vomiting frequently now, after eating, but also without obvious reason. She'd been to the compound nurse, who'd given her compazine for nausea and Tylenol with codeine for joint pain, and multivitamins with an additional dose of vitamin C. "'Are you feeling okay?' Howie asked one night at dinner, when she was eating nothing that she had prepared. "'Do I look okay?' "'You look wonderful, but you're not eating.' She took his inquisition as a probing of what she wanted to deny. "'I'm not hungry,' she said. "'What have you had today?' She didn't answer. "'You didn't eat anything, did you?' She had had only juice that morning. Nausea struck her. She got up quickly, but the weakness in her legs left her with no support, and she sprawled to the floor face down, her arms out to protect her. Her face still hit the floor, and she rolled over into a fetal position. She dry heaved twice and moaned. Hower had her in his arms. He rushed her to the bathroom. The heaving made her feel better. He helped her drink water, She did feel better with that. He picked her up again and laid her on the bed, adjusting the covers over her. He went immediately to get the nurse who came to administer a shot and more fluids. After the nurse left, Lucy felt Howard beside her in the bed with the light off. He remained sleepless. "'Are you okay?' he asked repeatedly. She touched him to be quiet. She didn't know if she was okay. She certainly didn't feel good." I'm taking you to the doctor in the morning, he said. Early the next morning, Howard took her to a doctor, who was also a church member, in Clayton, Georgia. The doctor drew tests, suspected kidney failure, and arranged an appointment with a nephrologist in Atlanta. She was uremic, in chronic kidney failure. The nephrologist strongly suspected the poisoning in Africa as the cause. Lucy's thinking had been dulled and her emotions blunted so much that she took the news calmly. She heard the need for immediate treatment of the anemia and acidosis, attention to a strict diet and no alcoholic beverages. Howard carefully took down instructions and managed the prescriptions. The treatments also fazed Lucy very little. She had little energy to fear consequences or face an unknown future. She might need dialysis or a kidney transplant. Repeated creatinine levels were needed to further make a recommendation, the doctor said. But the transplant is almost inevitable, isn't it, Doctor? Howard asked. Lucy barely followed the conversation. Her mind clouded with fluid retention and electrolyte imbalance. I'm afraid so, said the doctor. Chapter 53. Luke. Luke and most full professors were scheduled on a Wednesday or Thursday to meet with five members of the Academy Ethics Committee, who had flown in from various parts of the country to investigate A.J. McNeil's complicity in the allegations. A.J. was president-elect this year and would soon take the presidency of one of the leading clinical organizations in the field. Because the rumors were rampant, the committee had to come up with some action to prevent scandal at the top levels of management and fundraising. Luke knew each of the members in different ways, from training together to serving on national committees. Clarence, the chair, Nick, Esteban, Jose, and Paul. And they all knew A.J. Some were good friends. Luke had no idea how the meeting would go. Each of the professors were to be interviewed individually in a downtown motel conference room. No transcripts would be taken. Luke was told there was no recording, although he doubted that was true. Clarence began. Thanks, Luke, uh, for agreeing to meet with us. Uh, You know the Academy is concerned with the allegations against a member. Uh, We at first thought no action was appropriate but it's just been learned that the State Board of Medical Examiners thought enough had occurred to consider revoking Dr. Manmiel's license in the state of Georgia. There was intense negotiation from a number of organizations to ask to modify the Board's proposed action before it became public. The State Board agreed to drop the action against the license if A.J. would agree never to practice surgery in the state of Georgia again. Given that it was necessary to divert their action, the Academy felt the need to erase the accusations and regain A.J.'s reputation. Part of that was through the purview of the Ethics Committee making objective determination of A.J.'s not being guilty. It was appalling, Luke thought. The State Board making deals where justice was not served and that could endanger patients in other states. All politics where politics shouldn't be. Clarence continued. We are not a jury, and we are not here to serve justice with sanctions and penalties. You are here to dodge and weave so A.J.'s mistakes will not grow to hurt the specialty or the organization, Luke Thun. However, Clarence said, we do have the mandate from the President and the Board to determine as truthfully as possible the validity of the charges and suits, and then recommend an action to the Board, dismissal. "'censure, reprimand, or no action of A.J.''s membership. "'Do you have any questions?' "'Luke began. "'A couple of you might know that A.J. is my father-in-law,' he said. "'I will speak candidly, "'but I want you to know of that potential conflict of interest.' "'Thanks,' Clarence said. "'They were sitting at a rectangular table. "'Luke was at one end, Clarence at the other.' Each member of the committee had a stack of folders and papers before him. The committee started off by asking about the dismissal of Sandra Perez. Luke repeated the details, which he was sure they had in their papers. "'And you felt it was unjust,' Jose said. "'Without cause,' Luke replied. "'Couldn't it have been done without A.J.'s insistence or even knowledge?' "'It was handled through human resources,' Luke said." "'so I don't know what happened exactly. "'But I was told directly by one faculty member "'who wrote the only seriously negative evaluation "'ever recorded on Sandra "'that a few weeks before dismissal "'and out of the regular cycle of evaluations "'that A.J. wrote at least dictated the evaluations "'and that A.J. strongly urged him to sign. "'Are you implying intimidation?' Clarence said. "'Luke thought for a few seconds. "'Yes,' he said. The faculty member feared he would not be promoted. That faculty member should talk to us. I think he denied what he said, Luke said, and I don't think he talked to you. Under oath, if it came to that? I do not know, Luke said. Nick spoke. Do you have any opinion about the validity of the wrong eye surgery? A.J. admitted it at one time, later reversed or clarified. I believe an error was made, Luke said. "'and covered up. "'I have listened to evidence gathered "'by the Internal Quality Assurance Committee. "'Full Professor's Committee, that the one Clarence said.' "'Yes,' Luke replied. "'No one thinks the wrong eye charges error. "'The eye operated first "'had evidence of minimal visual potential. "'Couldn't it have been within the purview "'of the individual surgeon? "'Which eye to do first? "'They were both affected,' Clarence said.' What was done was not within common clinical practice, here or nationally, Luke said. You're a retina surgeon, Jose said. I am an ophthalmic surgeon who does retina, and I have full knowledge of what is common practice. Do you have any reason to dislike your father-in-law, Luke? Esteban said. Luke clenched his teeth, but made sure no other movement could allow them speculation against his testimony's validity. A.J. was my mentor and colleague. He always treated me fairly. I do not have reason to dislike him. There was a pause. "'Why speak out against him, then?' Paul asked. Luke's heart was pounding. "'I believe excessive surgery was done, for financial gain.' Poor patient care follow-up on the transplant resulted in uniocular and binocular blindness, and I believe inappropriate action was taken against those involved by administration. All actions that were wrong and hurt faculty, the school, and the profession. There are those who have suffered and deserve compensation. Some penalties must be applied. You don't think you will ever operate again, do you, Clarence said. I don't know, Luke said. "'but I already believe he's arranged a position in another state. "'And you continue to be willing to ruin a surgeon's "'and a chairman's career over what might have been an honest mistake "'that could happen to any of us "'and that has been blown out of proportion through vindictive slander?' "'José asked. "'José,' Luke said, "'I resent your accusation. "'Many wrongs have been done. "'I and many others believe they were not simple mistakes without reason.' "'You may not want to believe that. "'I accept your right to do that. "'But do not call my appearance before this committee "'or any of the faculty vindictive or slanderous. "'I didn't mean to single you. "'What you said was inappropriate,' Luke said. "'Clarence interrupted. "'I think we've had enough,' he said. "'He thanked Luke profusely for his time. "'Luke stood to leave, "'and there was no movement of anyone but Clarence to rise.' Luke made no attempt to shake the hands of men who had once been friends and colleagues. Three weeks later, a mild reprimand was issued from the Academy as a public letter to A.J. It was nothing, really, although it would eventually prohibit A.J. from ascending to the presidency of the Academy. The school continued to support A.J. as chair, and the insurance companies were ready to litigate, fearful that settlement would flush out more than the five suits already filed against A.J. At about the same time, Luke found out that all direct referrals to him from his colleagues were being shunted to a junior faculty member without his knowledge, or the knowledge of the referring physicians. Luke's practice was now less than half of what it had been last year. He knew he would have to resign to work elsewhere and immediately sent out feelers to determine what was available. He interviewed at four places. The best seemed to be a solo practice opportunity with the surgical group in Savannah. And it was Elizabeth's favorite of all the places he looked. He took the job. Luke married Elizabeth in a quiet but elegant ceremony in the church he had attended off and on, on Peachtree since childhood. A few days later, they made a permanent move to Savannah, Georgia to a 19th-century historic house surrounded by live oaks and facing the water. Chapter 54 Elizabeth A few days before Elizabeth and Luke left for Savannah, they took Agnes to Sunday brunch at a restaurant in Lenox Square. It was a buffet, they were seated at a reserved table. "'Is A.J. going down to work with that MacDonald guy?' Agnes asked. "'I hear he's going to San Antonio,' Luke said. "'I don't know about MacDonald. "'I guess he's the logical one to take him on. "'They've been friends since Harvard days.' "'Elizabeth saw the stress crease Luke's face. "'What will he do?' Agnes asked. "'He can do anything, from what I understand.' He's been licensed in Texas for years, and there has been no action against him by the Georgia board. "'They were afraid, weren't they?' her mother said. "'They think the action by the board will affect the court case, especially if it comes to trial. "'The word is there will never be any action by the board or the academy,' Luke said. "'But they investigated,' her mother said." "'No one will ever know exactly what went down, "'but I understand no action is a fail complete," Luke said. "'You've got to stop worrying about it,' Elizabeth said to Luke. "'I think it's criminal to take no action,' Luke said. "'I can't forgive him,' her mother said. "'The time had come to fill plates from the buffet. "'Once they were settled again, her mother spoke up. "'Did you see the article in the Sunday News section about that Bane? "'Neither Elizabeth nor Luke knew what she was talking about. "'He's been indicted on tax evasion or fraud or something like that. "'An investigative reporter has questioned his use of church funds "'flying around in that airplane, building a mansion. "'Was it really a mansion?' Elizabeth asked. "'Well, from the pictures, it was a mansion for a preacher.' "'Did he say anything about Lucy?' "'No, thank God.' But it did say Bain suspected of shady real estate deals using church money. I hope Lucy's all right, Elizabeth said. She always seemed to survive. Her mother said. I wonder how her health is sometimes. It's the renal failure, Elizabeth said. It's a debilitating condition, Luke said, and the dialysis is exhausting. Poor Lucy, Elizabeth said. She doesn't deserve this. Elizabeth looked at her mother didn't look up or say anything. In her heart, her mother thought Lucy deserved anything she got, mostly for her treatment of Jennifer, whom her mother still mourned. Chapter 55 Luke Howard Bain went to Luke and Elizabeth in Savannah. Luke, on first impulse on the side of him, refused to see him, But Elizabeth, by habit, invited him in and offered him a drink. Coffee? Iced tea? We don't have much, she said. We're still in the process of moving in. Bain accepted a Diet Coke. Luke and Bain took chairs in the living room. Luke had never met him, a large man, over six feet and more than 250 pounds, with rugged features, heavy, scowling eyebrows thick lips on an asymmetrical mouth, and uneven teeth. Luke waited for him to speak, to explain why he had come all this way, but he remained silent until Elizabeth returned with Diet Coke over ice in a glass. Luke moved over to give her room on the sofa. Lucy needs a transplant, Howard said. Did you know that? Luke had told Elizabeth the probable inevitability of it, Luke put his hand briefly on Elizabeth's arm to warn her to be silent. But she frowned and said, Why are you here, Mr. Bane?" Luke expected some hesitation from Bane, but Bain said, You've ignored her. She's family, and I find that reprehensible. Elizabeth tensed. Lucy needs a donor, Howard said, a living donor. It was a terrible thing to ask. It brought so much of the past to the surface, and although Bane didn't know, Elizabeth being the half-sister of Lucy might make her the best match available, except for her father, and maybe relatives in Puerto Rico that had never been located. I don't believe you're aware of the family's difficulties over the years, Luke said. Difficulties precipitated often by Lucy. Difficulties that make such a request awkward lucy wouldn't ask you bane said she couldn't bring herself to do that elizabeth still couldn't find words luke was sure elizabeth's humanity her responsibility to her half-sister wouldn't let her say no i'm afraid it's impossible luke said before elizabeth could speak and it's none of your business bane luke had of course thought of this possibility ever since he knew lucy was in renal failure and that chronic renal failure was almost always in need of a transplant. But he knew his blood type and Lucy's were not compatible. Elizabeth was the only obvious best donor. But she didn't deserve this guilt-laden pressure, nor should she ignore the risk of surgery. Luke saw no reason to share his knowledge of her compatibility with this jerk. "'Do you feel the same?' Bain asked Elizabeth. Luke spoke. "'She does.' Let her speak, Bane said. I want to know what she thinks. No, Luke said. It's time for you to go. Bane hesitated, trying to find words. May God forgive you, Bane said, standing up. You are her family. You have responsibilities. I can't ever forgive you. Bane let himself out. Elizabeth cried silently. Don't do it are a significant risk, Luke said. She wiped her eyes with the sleeve of her dress. I know I'm not compatible, Luke said, but I wouldn't do it even if I were. She'll die without it? Elizabeth asked. She's going to die, with or without it, Luke said. With it, she probably will live longer, but she probably doesn't have a normal life ahead of her. I don't know what to do, Elizabeth said. Think about it, then. We'll get advice, but we don't owe Lucy anything because a doctor advises her that a living donor is best. Lucy's been placed on a cadaver donor list, I'm sure, but that's not as good. Not as a living, no. A living donor might increase Lucy's life by years, but it could also be only a few months. I don't think it's worth the risk of your undergoing surgery or of your possibly losing function in the remaining kidney and needing a transplant yourself. Elizabeth was trembling. Come to bed, Luke said. See if you can sleep. We have lots to talk about. Chapter 56 Lucy Lucy traveled from the compound to Atlanta for her dialysis three times a week. Twice, Howard had used the plane to fly her down, and he once went with her himself. At other times, Jason Campbell, who had a daughter in Atlanta whom he would visit, usually drove her down. She had continued to work more and more frequently with Jason Campbell at the compound. She found her times with him civil and at times even enjoyable. He had a sense of humor she enjoyed. He was a strong family man and told lively and caring stories about his four children and two grandchildren. He had long ago abandoned hope of converting her and he rarely mentioned religion or his job. He was fascinated by politics, and she enjoyed his opinions and prejudices, which at times might have been her own if she'd wanted to dwell on the subjects. To drive, they had to start early, and this morning Lucy dressed and crossed from Howard's house to the administrative building where Jason would be waiting for her. But he wasn't waiting for her this morning. She set down her small suitcase by the door and entered the building. The corridor was dark, but there was a light seeping around the edge of the door to his office. She went to the door and knocked. There was no response. She pushed down on the door handle that yielded, and she opened the door slowly. Jason was behind his desk, his head on his folded arms on top of the desk. She thought he was dead. Jason, she started to run to him. His body jerked. He lifted his head and slowly opened his eyes. "'Are you all right?' she said. He put his head back down on the desk, refolding his arms. She ran to him and shook his shoulder. "'Talk to me,' she said. He sat up again and looked at her, still disoriented. "'Why are you here?' "'We're going to Atlanta. My dialysis is at one hundred thirty. He leaned back, resting the back of his head on the back of his chair, his eyes closed. After a few seconds he sat up and he looked at her, stood, and went to his sink, He splashed water on his face and dried with a paper towel from a metal dispenser on the wall. "'It's Thursday,' he said almost as a question. "'Have you been drinking?' Lucy asked. He said nothing and sat down in an armchair. She stayed standing. "'I can't miss my appointment,' she said. He concentrated. "'I'm not going,' he said. "'How will I get there in time?' "'I don't know, Lucy. I don't know. "'You'll just have to figure it out yourself.' "'Why are you doing this?' she asked. "'He shook his head. "'Why am I doing this?' he asked no one. "'This is ridiculous,' she said, and she started for the door. "'Sit,' he said. "'I've got to find a car. I'll drive myself. "'Just for a minute. I want to explain.' "'She hesitated before pulling up a chair near and across from him.' "'I've quit,' he said. "'Everything. I'm moving out this morning.' "'You're leaving, Howie?' "'And the church.' There were tears of anger and frustration in Jason's eyes. It was the last thing she would have expected. A wave of fatigue swept over her, and she wasn't sure if it was her disease or because she was suddenly tired of Jason and his always subservient nature. "'You can't leave Howard,' she said. "'It's not going to be pleasant for you, Lucy.' "'There will be no one to pay for your treatments any more, "'no one to support you. "'Howard does that. "'Howard is going down. "'The church is going down, "'although they're trying to cover the worst and stay in business. "'You're crazy,' Lucy said. "'He'll be indicted for tax fraud within days. "'There is an article coming out in the Sunday paper "'about his misuse of church money, "'airplanes, the house, property investments. "'I believe they'll include supporting you.' "'That's illegal?' Lucy asked. "'It's improper from church funds, but it's worse. "'They'll expose a trail of professional prostitutes "'he's paid in different cities with church funds. "'They'll hype the hypocrisy of it all, "'and they'll abhor the amounts. "'More than $200,000 over the years.' "'Lucy felt sick. "'And he used two lump sums to buy off that girl,' he said. "'The one you defended him against.' "'She was confused. She didn't understand.' How could he buy her off? She recanted her testimony. It was the basis of his appeal. That's illegal. He did it to never be traced. He was guilty? Of course he was guilty, Lucy. You lie, she said angrily. You're a fool. There were at least two others underage. You're jealous of him. Not at all. But I do hate him. He's put blame on me. I'll be indicted, too. He's ruined me without cause. She could not sort out the charges, or if they were true. Guilty of underage sex? A trail of prostitutes? She knew of women, but not prostitutes. Pay off to accusers? Not settlements? Was it possible? Not with the Howard bane she loved. But suspicion made her pause. She knew he might be capable of these charges, and more and she had always been willing to ignore the obvious. She loved him. But could she ever ignore these accusations again? "'You know I've never done anything wrong,' Jason said. "'Will you tell them?' "'Speak against Howard, Lucy asked. "'Will you support me?' "'You know he's capable of these charges. "'You've never let yourself see who he really is.' "'I cannot go against him, Jason. "'He's been kind to me.' "'You're an idiot,' he said.' "'Sticks and stones,' she said. "'You won't be getting any more checks. "'No more bills paid. "'Howard won't abandon me no matter what you think. "'He has nothing, Lucy. "'He wouldn't support you if he did. "'You don't know him. "'You're the one who doesn't know him. "'You deserve what's coming, Lucy. "'It's justice. "'And I thank God for his wisdom.' "'She'd had enough. "'She stood... Weak from her illness and the growing belief that some of what Jason had said might have truth. She'd never make her appointment now. She'd have to try to reschedule for tomorrow. Maybe get Howie to take her. Chapter 57 Lucy Lucy went immediately to see Howie. He was still in his robe. The morning maid had prepared his breakfast. Sleepy, he still looked at her. Then he smiled. Back so soon? I'm not going, she replied angrily. Jason's quit. He snorted. I fired him. He said some terrible things. Howie took an extendedly long sip of coffee. Which of the many things I can imagine upset you the most, he said sarcastically. To start... "'that you would be indicted on fraud. "'I think it's going to be tax evasion. "'Did you evade taxes?' "'Not that I know of.' "'She was still holding her suitcase. "'She set it down on the floor. "'He said the Journal-Constitution "'was about to expose you for scandalous sex "'and that there was evidence of prostitutes "'being paid with church funds. "'Can you deny that?' she said angrily, "'suddenly fatigued. "'She closed her eyes tightly for a few seconds.' He didn't respond. She looked at him. Jason says that you're putting fraudulent use of funds on him. That's why he's quitting. I fired him, Howie said. His detachment frightened her. He managed the books, Howie said. He made the decisions to purchase this and that and where it came from. He didn't make the decision to purchase an airplane. He saw it as a legitimate expense, or he shouldn't have paid for it. She sat in a chair. She was very tired. "'I don't know,' she began. "'I'll take you down for your appointment,' he said. "'We can still make it, can't we?' She was so tired. "'Would you?' "'Of course. I'll get dressed. Call the unit. Let them know we might be a few minutes late.' He started to dress. She put her head on her arms on the table and slept. He shook her shoulder to waken her. He helped her to the car— The plane was in Memphis. He didn't speak for more than an hour as she dozed on and off. Then she began to think more clearly. Feeling okay, he asked. Better, she said. This will all be cleared up, Lucy. I'm not a bad man. She'd almost forgotten about the accusations. At least they didn't seem important now. The nausea had started again. I love you, baby. This will all blow over. And I promise, we'll get you well. I promise. She dozed off again, vaguely thinking about payments to recant the girl's testimony. But she had no energy to ask. For the next few weeks, Lucy spent almost all her time in Howard's house alone between her dialysis appointments. Howard had increased his TV appearances and lengthened the time of his weekly show. The indictment had shaken him, but the growing public knowledge of the scandal angered him with a smoldering resentment against his enemies. He did not deny the tax allegations, as much as speak of his private life as private. She had not heard him specifically address the payments for his sexual favors with her or the public. Chapter 58. Lucy. Lucy had tried to do dialysis at the compound for a few times, with a nurse helping. But the nurse quit as the scandal evolved. The nurse was suddenly incensed to be required to treat the Jezebel of the Reverend. So Lucy returned to Atlanta for dialysis, being taken down in the morning, but needing to stay the night before the return trip to the mountains. She had no money for a hotel. She asked Elizabeth, who said the garage apartment in the main house was vacant, the house not yet sold. Elizabeth asked Agnes, who said she would never return to it, and she did not care who used it. Lucy would have to turn on the utilities. Elizabeth said she would take care of that and asked Agnes if they could use the car still parked in the far bay of the three-car garage under the apartment. Agnes didn't care. Howard was indicted on a Tuesday, and by Thursday the Journal-Constitution had an article and an editorial exposing what they thought was his downfall. They photographed and described his extravagances. They made estimates of the gross income from one of his TV broadcasts and then from a year's worth of broadcasts before and after his African hiatus. The church and Hower were hard to separate, and it appeared he controlled church finances, although there was loose board of elders' oversight of finances in general. They readdressed the accusation of molestation of an underage girl, but found no new charges. Four prostitutes were discovered paid through church funds under false names. More women were identified and expected to reveal additional misuse of tax-exempt church income. Chapter 59. Lucy. Lucy continued to have muscle and joint pain and prolonged fatigue that caused her to sleep most of the day and night. During her waking hours, she still had surges of nausea. Television did not hold her interest, and reading gave her discomfort. She mostly listened to music, and often sat for long hours in a comfortable upholstered chair, enjoying recordings of master musicians. Staying now, full-time in Atlanta, she couldn't help but miss Howie. The companionship, the arguments, the laughter, the shared opinions on a diverse number of ideas and observations. Late on a Thursday afternoon, her loneliness became intense and she decided to return to the compound for a few days. Her next dialysis was Saturday. She had not seen Howard for over a month. He did call her every few days, and the sound of his voice made her want to be near him. She put a few essentials into two paper grocery sacks and began her drive to the mountains. She left just before five. On the road, she tired about seven, and she pulled onto a secondary road and napped for thirty minutes or so. She awoke in darkness and quickly got back on the road. She arrived sometime after 9.30. Jeffrey, the night gate attendant, did not recognize her until she explained who she was. Who could blame him? She'd lost weight. Her sallow skin wrinkled over her bones. Was she ugly now? Lucy parked and with her bags walked to the house. The back door was open. All the lights were out. She flipped switches as she walked to the stairs. She flipped the switch to illuminate the upstairs hallway. She heard Howard call her name. She looked up. He stood at the landing railing, bare-chested and wearing only boxer undershorts, a shotgun in his hands. He lowered it, swinging the barrel over the railing. "'I'll be right down,' he said. Lucy began to climb the stairs slowly, fatigued after her drive. "'Stay there,' he said loudly. She looked up. Carla had come down the hall. Go back, Howard said to Carla. But Carla came up to him. She was nude except for an afghan she had wrapped around her shoulders. She saw Lucy, turned, and ran down the hall. Lucy stopped on the stairs, setting her bags down on a step, and grasped the railing for support. Her fatigue was worse. She couldn't think clearly. Howard came down and helped her to a chair in the dining room. I'm too tired to drive back tonight, she said. You've got to rest, he said. And she wanted to tell him she couldn't think of where she wanted to rest. She didn't want their bed, the bed they'd shared for years now. But even in the haze of her sickness, she just couldn't see sharing that bed with him again. She was too sick for anger. Although she knew anger would erupt when she felt better. Howard knelt by her. What can I bring you, he said. "'Why?' she asked softly. "'She imagined his explanation. "'Carla was a long-time friend. "'He had missed her, "'and Carla had been able to console him during his loneliness, "'as Carla probably had, Lucy thought now, in Africa, "'and who knows how many times in other places. "'Lucy imagined Howard lying to Carla, "'as she now knew he had often lied to her about so many things.' Her humiliation was eternal. She would never be the same. Howard got up and brought her a glass of water. He knelt beside the chair again. It's it's hard to explain, he said. We'll We'll, we'll talk about it in the morning. Chapter 60 Elizabeth Elizabeth carried a cloud of guilt about donating a kidney to Lucy. I still don't know what to do, she said to Luke one night when she couldn't sleep. All surgery has risk, Luke said. I know that, she said dismissively. Infection, hemorrhage, prolonged recovery, organ rejection, too. Luke paused. You could die. She loved him and he loved her and she knew he didn't want to lose her for any reason. Cadaver organs are one thing, Luke said, as he had before, but these guys who seek living donors are ghouls. They must do some good, she said, while harming others. Ophthalmic surgeons do corneal transplants, but thank God we don't burden patients who have two normal eyes to give one and risk partial or total blindness in the future. She listened intently to his passion. Her love for him filled her heart. These are supposed healers, Luke continued, who swear they do no harm. And because they can't find any other cure, they present a treatment that does physical and psychological harm to normal humans. It's criminal. Elizabeth held him, her head on his shoulder. After many minutes, she said, She's my half-sister. Family. Are you sure about that? Do you know any more than what A.J. told you in a fit of anger? Obviously to hurt you. He'd have no hesitancy in lying. I don't know, she said. But even if Lucy is not my blood relative, I've come to know her as a sister and family. She wouldn't do it for you, Luke said. I believe that. But it doesn't take away the guilt that I might be condemning her to a shorter life. They talked for another half hour. Talk to your minister, Luke said. I did. He advised prayer. Let God speak to you, he said. Trust your faith. Put the decision in the hands of God. Luke suggested a psychiatrist he had seen for months after Samantha's suicide, a compassionate doctor who had helped with his guilt over the belief that he had in some way been responsible for her death. I'll arrange an appointment, he said. The psychiatrist was a small, middle-aged man with gross features on a thin face, scraggly hair, and an unkept black beard. He wore glasses with thin gold rims that made his eyes small, the left smaller than the right. It was disturbing enough that Elizabeth needed to look away and was thankful when he directed her to a couch and sat up and to the left of her, where she couldn't see him. Other than Luke... She had never told anyone about Lucy having the same father as she did. She told the psychiatrist. "'How do you feel about that?' he asked. She had all sorts of feeling at the time she was told. But she didn't think any of them had persisted. "'I don't know,' she said. "'Is it any more important than my feeling for my mother or my father or the clerk at the grocery store?' The psychiatrist laughed softly and stayed silent for many seconds. You're right, Elizabeth. It doesn't make any difference. But I was trying to get a feel for the depth of your guilt if you refused. She closed her eyes as she responded. She told him about Jennifer, about loving her and caring for her as an aunt, and knowing the child always thought about her real mother, Lucy. She had never forgiven Lucy for the selfishness in not taking on the mother's role that Jennifer seemed to think about, if not need. "'I don't like Lucy, and I've never met her,' the psychiatrist said. "'But if I refuse the kidney, I'll always wonder if it was to punish Lucy. "'And I don't think I could ever rid myself of that question. "'He asked about her mother and father. "'He explored her feelings for children, "'her passion for teaching the gifted children, "'her process of writing books that children could enjoy for many childhood nights "'and take away meaning.' At the end of the session, he pulled his chair closer to her and looked directly into her eyes. You are a good person, Elizabeth, among the best. You are kind and selfless in ways few humans experience. I agree with Luke. You have no obligation to be a living donor. Be an organ donor after death, but not a living donor. I think it's a crime for a transplant surgeon to put this on you. You? or anyone. No one should have to make this decision. It's not fair, so if you need to, use me as an excuse. My psychiatrist says I cannot reasonably deal with the psychological stresses of being a donor, and he advises me strongly against agreeing to the surgery. The advice helped a little, but for many weeks she continued to consider the possibilities. She read more about the complications, and then the surgery, She sought guidance in the Bible, but found nothing that gave her any direction or comfort. She read philosophies, and she considered the conceptualization of Eastern religions of attaining the immersion into the whole of humanity and losing the self. The descriptions of the peace and acceptance of existence as part of the whole and the joy that it allowed. It's like an extended moment of selflessness, one article said, those instances where a human acts entirely without concern for self, as when a child is in imminent danger of being killed by a car and an adult sacrifices his or her life to save a child who is a stranger. Those are the states of being we seek in our lives, the article said. She could see how that thinking could justify her becoming a donor. The concept of seeking selflessness, sacrificing to the whole, it seemed the essence of her Christian teaching. It was surely what most donors must come to believe, what gave them satisfaction, and she began to think she should reconsider. It was, maybe, what her purpose here on earth was, to donate without personal gain to the whole. She talked to Luke about it, and the psychiatrist too, but neither of them saw any change in her responsibilities. Lucy's doctor's office contacted Elizabeth many months after Howard Bain had visited. They suggested Lucy was getting worse and that Elizabeth might come in for an examination just to see if she might be a compatible donor. There was no obligation, they said. If she was not compatible, then she would not have to think about it. Don't go, Luke said. But she went to the office when Luke didn't know, and she was an excellent candidate. Healthy and a good match. Three weeks later, Elizabeth missed her second period. A drugstore pregnancy test was equivocal. She went to an obstetrician who confirmed her pregnancy. He did not hesitate to advise against donation, and even the transplant surgeon would not operate on a pregnant woman and would not reconsider Elizabeth as a donor until six months after delivery. Chapter 61 Lucy New Year's Eve. Lucy drove to Roswell to her favorite tavern. There were no parties here, and few patrons. She did not greet the bartender, who was only partially visible in the back room behind the bar, and she silently sat alone in a booth. In the dark, and with the high backs on the benches that formed the booths, she was barely visible. She had brought three magazines and a paperback book that she laid on a table in a stack. She adjusted the small shaded table lamp so she could read. The bartender brought her her usual glass of wine and a basket of trail mix. Weather getting bad, the bartender asked. Raining, Lucy replied. Weather channel predicts ice. None yet, at least, she said. Happy New Year, he said. And to you. She thumbed through a magazine and finished her glass of wine. She signaled for another. Lucy started to read her book, but it did not grab her interest, and she leaned back against the upholstered red back of the bench. She was swamped with a sudden sadness. She thought of Howard, and she felt anger and resentment at the memory of him with Carla. How could she love a man for so long? Oddly, she could still feel attraction for him. She had always been in love with what she wanted him to be. How could she have denied, time and time again, the obvious about him? She would never let that attraction rule her life. The real power would never dominate her again. She thought of Elizabeth, how difficult it had been for her. She must have been afraid of the surgery. She was always squeamish. And how could she have wanted to give a kidney to her adopted sister after all the years they had fought? But Elizabeth had made the decision to donate before her pregnancy was known. Elizabeth had called to tell Lucy. Lucy could not fathom that devotion, and she felt guilty about who she was, that she could never have done that for Elizabeth, or anybody, except Jennifer. The thought of Jennifer triggered painful sadness. She called to the bartender, Her head was clear. She asked for a vodka martini. She moved to sit at the bar. "'You got plans for the evening?' the bartender asked. It was New Year's Eve. She was on a cadaver list for a kidney, and everyone she asked thought she would find a donor before, well, at least soon. Luke was even asking friends, mostly former medical colleagues, to find a donor. He'd put up considerable money in the effort— inexplicable. Why should he do such a thing? She had never treated him well. Why couldn't she have loved him? Why wouldn't the Howie-like passion for Luke come to her? But it never did. And she wasn't to blame. It was not her fault. And now Luke and Elizabeth were helping her. She was grateful but suspicious at the same time. What was the motivation in them that she would never understand? She just didn't believe selflessness existed in the human spirit. Oh, there was some, but mostly it was faked. Every human was about self. She still hoped for a living kidney donor. Her remaining time might be more than doubled from that of a cadaver transplant, she'd been told repeatedly. "'This is my quiet night at home,' Lucy said to the bartender. The first sips of the martini had dimmed her feelings." "'This is my New Year's,' she said, raising her glass. "'The first martini in a long, long time. "'A celebration. I've been sick. "'Well, I hope the New Year will bring you the best of everything,' the bartender said. "'Lucy thoughtfully swirled the remaining vodka in the martini glass. "'Alcohol was bad for her. "'It made her uremia and acidosis and everything else worse. "'But she'd come to rely on wine.' to relieve the pain and apprehensions she'd felt since back from Africa. And Fenley had made it a fun drink, a lubricant for an easy laugh and a forgotten memory. And she never drank more than a couple of glasses of wine. Tonight was a celebration with a martini. One more, Lucy said to the bartender. This was the new year. She'd get a kidney, get off dialysis, "'She'd find work when she felt better. "'She'd treat Luke and Elizabeth better. "'She'd be kind to Agnes. "'She felt genuine warmth for her mother now, "'what she was sure was love. "'It would be a good year, a year with a future. "'TV says it's going to ice soon,' "'the bartender said to the customers now seated at the bar. "'Lucy stood and slipped into her coat. "'She gathered her books,' She put cash on the bar with plenty of excess for a New Year's Eve tip. All the best for a great 2009, she said. She waved to the bartender. He thanked her for coming by. Many of the customers wished her a Happy New Year. She went outside. The heavy clouds overhead filled the night with impenetrable darkness. She stayed close to the building where lights under the eaves showed her the path. Then she was on a stone path that led across a vacant lot. She could faintly see the great pebbles that lined the path, enough to make her way. She followed the path for fifty or so yards, until she came to a wooden bridge without rails that arched a few feet over a small creek. It was another thirty yards, to the lot, where she had parked her car. Ice was already forming. She stepped on the bridge. Her toe slipped. She shifted to the right of the bridge, where there seemed to be an uniced patch of bare board. Gingerly, she started up the slight incline. Taking tiny steps, she started down. Her feet went out from under her. She fell to the right, dropping her books as her arms flayed to keep her balance. She fell seven feet, landing on her side in the cold water, her head hitting a pointed rock. Pain shot through her skull. There was a lesser pain in her right leg. The water numbed her back in the lower side of her body. The head pain persisted. She passed out. Chapter 62 Elizabeth Elizabeth and Luke arrived from Savannah at Agnes' shared house with her friend to spend New Year's Eve in preparation for the New Year's Day dinner with seventeen attendees from various branches of Agnes's family. All would assemble at a perimeter hotel for a catered celebration. Elizabeth and Luke arrived at seven o'clock. Agnes's friends said Agnes had gone to her old home to get Lucy. Lucy had been contacted by the hospital, but they could not reach Lucy. A cadaver transplant was available. Luke and Elizabeth drove to the old house, Agnes's car was in the drive. They found her with a flashlight searching the grounds in the dark of a light rain. "'She's not here,' Agnes said. "'Nowhere inside or out.' Luke found two more lights, and the three of them searched the property. Finding no clues, they went up and down each side of the road. "'Where would she go?' Elizabeth asked. "'She went occasionally to the movies,' Agnes said. "'Did she visit friends?' Agnes did not know." Is the car in the garage? Luke said. I don't have a key, and it's too dark to see inside, Agnes said. Luke broke the panel on the side door to gain entry. The car was gone. They went to neighbors to find places Lucy might go. At the third house, an elderly woman said she occasionally spoke with Lucy. She did not know Lucy's friends, but that Lucy enjoyed the theater and knew that she had been excited about going to that tavern in Roswell. She wasn't sure of the name. The rain had turned to freezing. Already the trees were coated with glimmering magical ice. They went to a theater first, but could not find Lucy. Agnes decided to go home to call the hospital and anyone who might know about Lucy. Elizabeth and Luke went to Roswell to find a tavern that Lucy might frequent. The bartender listened to Luke's description of Lucy. You mean that sick woman, always bent over a little, like real thin? Yes, said Luke. Is she here? You can see she ain't here. But she was, left maybe an hour and a half ago. Do you know where she went? I never know a client's destination unless I put him in a taxi. Did she appear despondent, Elizabeth asked? She appeared happy enough when she left, more upbeat than usual. Was she drunk? "'Luke asked. Two glasses of wine and two vodka martinis. "'Walked okay. Sounded okay, too. "'They asked where she might have parked, "'and he described the most likely place. "'The wind had picked up now, "'and the rain had turned to sleet. "'The ice on the road glinted in the headlights of the cars. "'A car lost control at the intersection "'and slid sideways into the bumper of a truck, "'but the damage was not severe.' and Luke and Elizabeth did not delay to see if the car could move on. They walked beside the building, hands pressed against the wall for support. Ice covered everything, and there was almost no traction. They found the path, visible under the ice. Elizabeth slipped, falling backward. Her head hit the ground. Luke helped her sit. Her vision was blurred, and her head pounded. I don't think I can stand, she said, feeling blood at the back of her head and looking at her hand, the blood black in the night on the tip of her fingers. "'I'll take you inside,' Luke said. "'Go look for her car,' Elizabeth said. "'I'll go inside as soon as I can stand.' Luke braced and tried to help her stand. "'No,' she said. "'I can go in a few more minutes. Go.' Luke moved off along the path, crouched to adjust to the constant slips and slides. Minutes later, Elizabeth got to her hands and knees, then slowly stood... With both hands on the wall of the building, she sidestepped to the entrance. The bartender brought her a towel for her head, and she sat at a table waiting for Luke. After many minutes, she felt better and went outside to find Luke. As she closed the door, Luke stumbled around the corner. He had Lucy in his arms. She's alive, he said. I'll call an ambulance. They'll be hours to get here, if at all. Look, the intersection was blocked now crossing filled with tangled cars and trucks, they got Lucy in the back seat of Luke's car. They covered her with their coats. Elizabeth got into to cradle Lucy's head and shoulders and tried to warm her. Luke drove. He eased down side roads where there were fewer disabled cars. He called instructions to Elizabeth to keep Lucy warm, keep her airway open, check her pulse. They came to Peachtree Road. "'Stationary emergency vehicles blocked by snarled traffic flash strobes as sirens wailed. "'Finally there was some traffic movement. "'The nearest hospital was Piedmont. "'With flashers activated and blowing his horn, Luke tried to move through traffic, "'but the going was at a creep. "'Few cars had much control over their progress. "'He made it through one intersection, then another. "'People could not adhere to stoplights for a short stretch.' He moved fast enough to see the speedometer move up to between 5 and 10. Then he lost control. The car slid at a 90-degree angle to the side of the road. He hit traction and straightened the progress, inching back into the center of the lane. The car rocked. The grill of a delivery truck smashed into the front. Locked in twisted metal, the truck and the car slid off the road, stopping when they hit a telephone pole. The impact rocked the car. You all right, Luke asked. Elizabeth wasn't hurt. Lucy's shallow breathing was unchanged. Luke kicked open the passenger side door. Elizabeth unlocked the back door for him. She's still breathing, she said. He felt Lucy's pulse. Lucy, he said loudly, wake up. Lucy's eyes opened slowly. She tried to focus. Luke, she said. The driver of the truck looked in over the open door. Anyone hurt? he asked. Elizabeth held up her hand to keep him quiet. "'Lucy,' Luke said again, "'stay with us. "'We've only got a few blocks to go. "'Don't slip away. "'You've got to want to stay awake. "'Do you understand?' "'He shook her. "'She smiled weakly. "'We're on our way,' he said. "'Elizabeth got out of the car "'and helped Luke ease Lucy out. "'Luke cradled Lucy in his arms. "'We'll walk. "'We'll try to find help,' he said to Lucy. "'Walk in the street,' the driver said. "'I'll keep traffic away.' See if someone will stop, Luke said to Elizabeth. Luke carried Lucy. The driver waved his arms to warn approaching cars. Even in the road, sheets of ice were forming. Elizabeth ran ahead trying to stop a vehicle at a crossroad. After two blocks, a pickup truck stopped. The owner dropped the tailgate. Luke put Lucy on his coat. Elizabeth held her head. Stay with us, Luke, yelled to Lucy as the truck started up. He pushed two sacks of rock salt aside to lay beside Lucy and keep her warm. Ice had stopped all movement of cars and ambulances at the hospital entrance. Luke carried Lucy. Elizabeth followed. Lucy, he said, but she did not respond. The emergency room staff took Lucy from his arms and placed her on a gurney. A nurse tried to find a pulse. Code red, she said, to a tech, who moved to a wall phone. The nurse lowered the gurney. A doctor began chest compression. A technician tried to find an arm vein. An anesthetist soon placed a mask on Lucy's face. Her outer three fingers pulled up Lucy's chin while the other hand squeezed a bag of oxygen. Luke steadied the foot of the gurney. Paddles were placed on the chest. A shock stimulus applied. The body jerked. An EKG monitor was in place. An irregular spike shot up on a flat line. Then there was nothing. Work continued for many minutes until the nurse touched the doctor's shoulder and he stopped resuscitation. Personnel began removing equipment and a sheet was placed over the body. Elizabeth was rigid. Luke took her hand as the gurney was pushed into a holding room and the swinging noble doors shut Epilogue Twenty-six years later, A.J. is still CEO of a general hospital in San Antonio. For years he practiced surgery, although with time he had cut back considerably. Agnes never spoke to him after the necessities of divorce proceedings. She still lives happily with her friend Gladys. They are fond of cruises to exotic places. Over the past few years, two books have been written about A.J. and his downfall. One book was a journalistic attempt to provide details of what happened. The other chronicled the university's extended cover-up and exposed illegal financial dealings and transactions within the university administration and documented transcripts of meetings and recorded interviews with many who had been involved. The university settled some lawsuits. Others went to trial. Insurance companies and the university paid millions, but actual sums were never disclosed. Articles were written in scientific journals about practice patterns and the culture of ophthalmology and its contribution to health care. And the Academy of Visual Sciences' responses through the Ethics Committee were discussed and eventually criticized for their failure to admit A.J.'s complicity and greed. Elizabeth and Luke have two children. Their son is a professional dancer on Broadway. Their daughter is a hematologist with an appointment at the University of Michigan School of Medicine. Elizabeth stopped teaching when she won the Kennecott Award for Excellence in Children's Literature and signed a multi-book contract for future works. She now still writes and illustrates on average one book a year. Howard Bain spent a few years in prison. After release, he quietly resumed his mission in Africa, not so much to bring Christianity to the populace this time, but to raise the quality of life. Finley Cooper was found dead a few years after Lucy died. The death was listed as heart failure, and although the real cause was never determined, suicide was suspected. Over the years, Luke was pressed to tell about A.J. Working with an editor now, he plans to write a book. Thanks for listening to the Spirit of Want. Please consider exploring the stories of William H. Cole's novels and short stories are available on Kindle, ebook, audio, print, and online. And goodbye. This podcast number thirty-four is a production of StoryAndLiteraryFiction.com.